Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I'm sitting here with Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? I'm doing good, Jinx. Doing good. How you doing? I, uh, Paul, I'm under the weather. I got to tell you. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I, I got to tell you, I've started, uh, I've started keto, like the keto diet. Have you heard of? Have you heard of this? Uh, I've heard this of. I've heard of it. I'm not, I'm not like super familiar with it, but I have heard of it. It sounds unhealthy as hell, but you know, on the bright side, it makes you feel like shit. So um, <laughs> that's a positive. You know, it, I don't know what I'm doing right now, but apparently, <laughs> it's healthy for you. So I just have to trust that. There's something called uh, the keto flu that hits you, and uh, it's sure enough, Paul. I feel like I have the damn flu right now. We'll go ahead and clue listeners in who probably don't give a damn about what I'm talking about right now. But I'm going to keep <laughs> going because I don't know what else to do with this opening. But uh, we actually had to postpone recording a night because uh, last night I literally could not drag myself to a microphone to talk with you. I apologize. It's okay. But okay. Uh, I feel a little bit better. I'm feeling, I'm, I still feel kind of like, you know, uh, not great, but I'm, uh, I'm going to get there. I'm getting there. I'm baby steps, man. So hopefully, fingers crossed, that uh, it winds up working for me because I've got to tell you, man, two days in, I'm not doing this for the fun of it. Well, hopefully a, a night of fun hammer conversation, you know, is, is the medicine you need. Yeah, the, the great thing is we have an awesome movie to talk about tonight. Oh, yeah. One of the best. Yeah. Spoiler. Anyway. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the mummy shroud here in a bit. Uh, but before we do, let's go ahead and treat listeners to uh, what some of our recent watches have been. Uh, Paul, I, I normally will let you go first, but I think we're going to share one here because somehow, some way, last week when we had a blast talking with uh, Emily and uh, all things frankenstein created woman uh for whatever reason both you and i neglected to talk about what is apparently the highest grossing movie of the pandemic a massive monster film that everybody is talking about and somehow we just didn't think to discuss godzilla versus kong paul so let me throw it over to you have you seen it i know you've seen it but have you seen it it. (laughs) and what did you think of Uh, so yeah, I, I, I had a lot of fun with it. I don't know. I mean, I, I think part of the reason we probably didn't bring it up is that this is a movie that's already been like, it already feels sort of over talked about in some ways with like the Twitter dialogue on it. Um, but what I will say is for my money, uh, it is, uh, it's my second favorite of these new monster movie things. Cause there's four, right? I'm thinking yes. right. Yeah. I'm guessing after Skull or Skull yeah, Island Kong is my Skull favorite. Island. Yeah. Skull so Skull Island is is just it's yeah, it's everything I want out of a movie like that. Um but we're not talking about Skull Island. We're talking about Godzilla versus Kong. We should uh, be talking about Skull Island. I know. That movie is great. Um but no, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. I watched it with my kids. Um the girls uh really had a great time with it. Um one of my favorite moments came in the sort of neon city fight towards the end. Oh my God. When, uh, when Godzilla, uh, like kind of comes down on Kong and there's this like huge moment, uh, and then Kong gets knocked down and like all this disaster stuff happens. And, and then like in the brief silence that followed that, my 10 year old was sitting next to me. I could hear her just whisper, damn. <laughs> 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 and I looked at her and she kind of gave me this like, Oh no, I just swore kind of look and uh it was it was super funny uh but now, it, it shows you that 
kids are, you know, appreciating the monster mayhem. Now, which hat did you wear in the moment immediately following that? Did, were you like fellow movie th- fan? Oh, I was. I definitely was fellow movie fan. Yeah, well, not even a. I'm. I'm. I'm not the best uh, disciplinarian as it is. Um, so when you get me in the middle of like a giant monster fight movie, which, uh, you know, anyway, so I, I only bring that up because I think that's about all the review the movie needs. Like it's, it does what it sets out to do. It, it presents some great set piece battles, um, bathed in neon light. Uh, I loved, uh, Wingard's direction. I, I, I had a great time with it. And, you know, I know some people are sort of up in arms about the uh, the human stuff. And my thing is, uh, my take on it. It's just hilarious to me. <clears throat> um, so. I, yeah, no, you're fine. I, I, I don't know. I think the whole point of these movies is to have fun. That, that's what they're there for. They're here to have fun. Um, I think the problem, so the one I like the least is Godzilla King of the Monsters. Um, and I'm not trying to shit on that movie or anything i I think there's great things in it but i think the problem with the human stuff and we've talked about this too is that it's so damn serious like everything's trying to be so heavy um whereas this movie it like it features a podcaster having like misadventures with children like it gets that it's silly it gets that the fun of this you know should be carried through to the human stuff and that the plot is purposefully convoluted it's always going to be um and the best way to handle that is to just have a damn good time and and we mentioned skull island earlier i think skull island does that the best where you've got like john c Riley is like a deranged like you know person who's been trapped on this island who crashed there during like a war you know and he's kind of losing his mind a little bit like that's a super fun side story this movie sort of re-engages around having fun side stories um, and the hollow earth mythology is, is a good time. I don't know. I just, it's a mile a minute movie. Um, I had a great time with it and I hope they make more. Yeah, I agree entirely. I, it, you know, it's weird. You were talking about how serious some of the movies got like, yeah, I, I don't understand the criticism of a movie like this. that the human stuff isn't great. And weirdly enough, they said the same thing. You know, a lot of the same people like were kind of complaining about the same thing with the uh, King of the Monsters. You know, it's like, oh, the human stuff is terrible. The human stuff is terrible. It's like, what exactly are you wanting out of the human side of these giant monster movies? Like to me, out yeah. of the two, I'm going to unless you're doing, you know, Gojira or unless you're doing the original King Kong where, yeah, the monsters are stand-ins for larger themes that require a certain weight to the human element in the movies. Unless you're doing that, then really these movies are fucking silly on a conceptual level, and they should probably only be there to have fun. You know, and it, could you imagine a version of Godzilla vs. Kong that took itself as deadly seriously as King of the Monsters? It would have been such a fucking bore, man. Right. And yeah. I, I love the fact that, like, you know, to me, it reminded me of a great 90s blockbuster where the characters are all likable. You know, it's fun. It's breezy. But the movie knows why you're there. You know, you're there yeah. for the popcorn moments. You're there for the trailer moments. You're there to watch a giant monkey and a giant lizard beat the shit out of one another. And yeah. in that regard, like it, it, uh, it pays off in spades. But not only that. When people do complain about the monster stuff, it's like, are you telling me that you didn't appreciate the heart between, you know, King Kong and the little girl and how she taught him the fucking sign? Like, 
that's that's fantastic. Uh, you know how the human stuff leads to the Hollow Earth and that exploration. You know how um, you know you you have sort of the de facto villain of the piece come up with such a crazy fucking like scheme. And I won't. I, the movie's already been out for like three weeks, but I'm still hesitant to dive fully into spoilers. But you know there is there is another threat in the final act of the movie, and that threat is sort of created by one of the human villains in it. And I just the reasoning there and the payoff to that, I just thought was a blast. So I understand the criticisms of the, like the podcaster and the two kids and how you could almost cut that entire subplot and the movie would still not be wanting for it. But at the same time, Hey, all that stuff was mildly amusing. I had no problem with it at all. And to me, I, I love the fact that Adam Wingard shot the hell out of the movie, but he also chose to just make it like a big crowd pleasing, like, you know, go for broke, gourmet popcorn movie you know i that's all i wanted from that movie and it 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 delivered uh it's 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 absolutely and you know i will say even out of the 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 2014 godzilla movie is well made and it's good but it's just kind of stale to me you know it's a little stiff you know and then uh king of the monsters is a gorgeous just mess of a movie, but not in a good way necessarily. There's a lot of great stuff in it, but overall the movie is meh. Uh, Kong Skull Island, I think, is probably the better movie of the two, but I gotta say, Godzilla vs. Kong is the most fun I've had so far with this new monster verse. And if its surprise success leads to further movies or a phase two or whatever the hell they're going to do, I hope that they take their cues from those two movies going forward, whatever whatever they wind up doing with them. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I can't imagine they won't make more, especially it's not like this movie ends with some sort of definitive conclusion, you know, yeah. and and also like the amount of money it's making and its popularity. I know <clears throat> there was some question as to whether or not the series would continue after Godzilla King of the Monsters, since that was sort of an underperformer, considering what they were expecting. Um, but but yeah, no, I, I and. I agree with all that, um, and I don't want to belabor the point I, and get into like some of the other movies. But I agree. If if this is the future of that franchise, I am very excited and I am very in. Um, I I will say that I would probably be more excited for whatever comes next than I have been for uh, because this is the best I've felt about the traje- trajectory of that series um, since its inception. Even though Skull Island's probably my favorite of the movies. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> yeah. Rock on. Now, Paul, what else have, uh, what else have you seen in the week since? We um, last well, I've watched a lot of non horror, uh, but there were a couple that sort of fit, uh, the, the bill as it were. Um, one of them <clears throat> is, is not really horror. It's more horror comedy. Um, but I think it, it counts. I watched the 1942 Abbott and Costello film, Who Done It? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have not. I just love Abbott and Costello. And now I need uh, to see this out. Yeah. So um, after telling you I was not going to purchase anything from the Shout Factory sale because I had spent way too much money, I went onto the Shout Factory sale and I bought the Abbott and Costello box set uh, because I am a sick person who has a very real problem uh, with Blu-rays. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I bought this collection that has like, however many freaking movies i mean it's got like 30 movies in it so it's going to take me a while to uh 
work my way through. Uh, it's the complete universal collection of Abbott and Costello films on Blu-ray. And uh, so I kind of went through it and selected out some of their horror uh, adjacent ones to start out with, since that's kind of my genre of choice. So this is a movie uh, that I really loved. Um, they play two sort of soda jerks who work at like an ice cream parlor and their dream is to write like radio mysteries, you know, cause back then that was kind of the thing like radio horror mysteries and things like that. Um, and they've got this idea for like a mystery they want to pitch to the radio station. So they go to the radio station and buy tickets to that night's show. Cause I didn't realize this. Um, apparently, uh, those radio mysteries would have like live audiences a lot of times. Uh, really? I didn't, I don't know if that's made up for this movie, but I'm, I'm assuming it was just a thing, you know, because why else would it be featured in a movie about radio mysteries? Um, and they get tickets to go to the show. Well, unbeknownst to them, there's also this sort of like mafia, well, mob kind of plot line where, People are <clears throat> double crossing each other. And long story short, one of the guys in the radio broadcast has gotten like in bad ways with the mob. And during the show, the lights go out and a man is murdered. <clears throat> the lights come back on and everyone in the room is now like a suspect. Right. So it's sort of a clue esque thing set in a like radio station in the middle of the night because it was a midnight broadcast and Abbott and Costello are amongst those who could potentially be uh, the killer. Of course they're not, <laughs> but we know they're not. Um, but there the should have been one movie not. like that where they <clears throat> actually were. Sure. That would have been great. Um, I would. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like which, which one of them did it would be funny. Um, but at any rate, uh, so Abbott and Costello find themselves in the midst of a real murder mystery. Uh, and that's kind of the premise of the film. Uh, it is very silly. It's very funny. Um, you know, it's just, it's a great time, man. It's it, if, if that premise like made you smile, like you will enjoy this thing. It's 77 minutes, which is even better, right? I mean, dear God, 77 minutes. It's like, an episode of a show at this point. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, it, it's, it's really wonderful. So yeah. Who done it? Check it out. I'll have to check it out. Uh, I have not seen much this past week, Paul, but, uh, as promised last week on the show, I, uh, <laughs> I watched the fear. So, uh, saw that one, go. saw that movie. <clears throat> That's what I did. Um, actually, did a double feature of the fear and the fear uh, resurrection, retribution, uh, afterlife. Uh, I, the final chapter. I never saw the fear whatever. sequel. I never. It's a Halloween movie, right? The fear it, sequel. It is. It is. And I gotta say, uh, I actually preferred it to the original. But as far as the original goes, like you've already talked about it before, we talked a little bit about it last week. I'm not gonna belabor the point and actually go through the plot such as it is, I'll just say that the movie itself uh, surprised me in the first 10, 15 minutes with how well-made it was. Like, I had it in my head that it was going to be like this really kind of cheap, um, not-so-great, maybe, late 90s direct-to-video kind of flick, you know, maybe like sub-full moon, maybe. And uh, I was kind of surprised at how kind of well-made the movie was. And the... Uh, the quality of the performances, which I will say nobody's, everybody is pretty damn solid in the film. Um, 
the thing is, though, is once you there's this promise of <laughs> a great villain in Morty, who is the uh, the life size wooden doll, who acts T- terrifying. As, terrifying life size one doll yes yeah he he's morty is great actually the uh i don't know you know there's this thing in the movie where the first time you see him it's clearly a dude in makeup it's not an actual wooden puppet his eyes are real i swear (laughs) they chose takes where you could clearly see he was breathing and his eyelashes are fluttering and it's that, like but that makes intended. it so much more frightening. Well, like, I was going to say, disturbing. that's exactly it. It's like you're watching it and it's like, okay, is this a mistake? Or do they want you to know that he is alive? And nobody else, it's subtle, so nobody else is noticing it. So I gave the movie the benefit of the doubt and just went with the latter explanation. I'm like, okay, it's clearly alive, but it's subtle enough that nobody else is paying attention to it. Okay, fine, cool. But then you... yeah. The movie sort of loses focus in the back half, and you don't know really what the point of having the doll there is, because you know the the ultimately everyone's fears are sort of turned against them. But it just it seems so scattershot. The back half as to and plus you know at a certain point like there is a flashback and a backstory and a character's origin <laughs> yeah, right. all sort of introduced. And it's just, it feels like a kitchen sink movie. And uh, it's funny, you and I were talking before uh, we started recording about how a movie being messy or a mess is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. In the Fierce case, it's a bad thing. Like, that movie's <laughs> a bit of a mess. You know, I still... <laughs> it is charming in its own right. I, I enjoyed watching it enough. But it bugged me that the premise was strong enough. And the villain was strong enough that it could have been a far better movie than what we actually got. And then I turned right around and popped in the sequel, which does not have a lovingly restored from 4K like Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome right now. Like I had to track down a shitty 4x3 you know, presentation on a 20-year-old DVD. But I will say that the movie kind of it, – it's a different set of creators – it is a different Morty. Uh, Morty now looks like he, uh, it looks like the wooden puppet got a haircut and has been hitting the gym. Um, it's, it's <laughs> not necessarily a better Morty, but it is a better movie um, because they boil it down to the essentials. Mm-hmm. They say, okay, here's a puppet. You know, here's the wooden doll. The wooden doll is alive. This is the wooden doll's backstory in just a neat little chunk. And uh, this is what the wooden doll does. Like, if you're around him, he basically brings your fears to life and kills you with him. Clean. Yeah. Simple. Well done. Great setup. You know, and then you introduce a bunch of characters, and then you start picking them off. Uh, The cast is great. It's a moody. Like, it's a good-looking movie. Uh, Funny that I mentioned Full Moon. Like, it looks like a Full Moon movie from the 90s. Like, it looks like full moon playing around with some paramount money that's kind of what the look is uh and as a matter of fact i really want to see that now like i'm gonna have to find a copy of that because it's yeah it's it's fun don't get me wrong it's not it's not like the greatest like sort of hidden uh uh, horror flick you've never seen but it is a damn sight stronger than the first film i hope vinegar syndrome gets around to actually releasing this one because i would totally put it on the shelf next to the first one but uh yeah as you mentioned it's actually it's a halloween movie too so uh for all of those reasons i would recommend sure if you want check out the original uh you can't go wrong buying vinegar syndrome like you're gonna have a fun time and there are a lot of great bonus features on that blu-ray 
But uh, if you do, then go ahead and spend the extra coin and track down a copy of the sequel, too. I, uh, I do a double feature, and ultimately I think you'll have a pretty fun night. Just keep some popcorn and beer handy. <laughs> or, or a good alcoholic. Yeah, drink, and, you know. and I will say, like, because um, I think I enjoyed the fear maybe a little more than you. Um, but I, I never would claim that it's a good movie. I just, I just think it's, I do think it's a fun mess. Like I do think it, it's messiness is fun. And I like that Wes Craven's in it. And I like He's that. Very good. He's a damn solid actor. And I just think that wooden doll is creepy enough that the movie doesn't have to make sense. It, it's one of those things where it's like, that thing is so fucking weird and creepy. And, and every frame it's in, I am just terrified uh and so therefore like the random shit that that like i could not i could not tell you what that movie's actually about i don't know i don't know what these characters are doing or why they're doing it i don't remember i just remember the doll and <laughs> that's that kind of movie where it's like if if i walk away and and i will say i was drinking pretty heavily while i was watching it so maybe that helped um but it just feels like exactly what you'd think a convoluted 90s video store horror movie would be uh, and so for that reason, I like, and it has a year round Christmas village in it, which is pretty weird. I thought that was kind of great. Um, so anyway, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that second movie now. I, I it's, it's going up on my list. I'm going to find a copy and watch it. I, I might hold off till Halloween though. I might save it because if it's a Halloween theme thing, that could be a cool, you know, thing to save. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely give it a shot. I, uh, if you like the first one, you will like the second one. I do believe. Sweet. All yeah, right. The first one's like a, uh, the other one I'm going to go with, <clears throat> let's see, I'm going to stick with black and white older horror, uh, or slightly horror adjacent movies. This one is a bit of a stretch to call it horror, but I'm, I'm going to count it as genre because it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. I had never seen called I confess, from 1953. Uh, have you ever seen this one? I have not. This is uh was this in any way spurred on by the Hitchcock conversation last week? Um, no, I, well, I, maybe, I mean, I'll be honest. The reason I watched it is because, um, I, it was one of the movies I picked up in my Warner archive thing where I bought like a million Warner archive movies. Um, it was one of the few Warner archive Hitchcock discs I hadn't bought yet. So I just were sort of like added it to the pile. Um, and the other night I was picking a movie and it was getting kind of late. So I picked by runtime <laughs> and I was going through only the movies that I had recently purchased, trying to make sure that I watch those before I start watching other movies in my collection. And it was one of the only ones that I hadn't watched yet. That was like at that 90 minute mark. Uh, so that was the main reason I watched it. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I, I I love Hitchcock and there's a lot of, as I said in the previous conversation, like for as many Hitchcock movies as I have seen, there's a ton I haven't. Uh, this was one of the ones I hadn't. It's from 1953. So it's sort of Hitchcock has definitely hit his stride by the time he's making this movie. Um, maybe not become the the biggest name out there, but is definitely well known, um, you know has made some great stuff and uh it's starring montgomery montgomery cliff and uh uh clift and ann baxter and it's basically uh, about a priest who and it's one of those movies where 
it does the Hitchcock thing of giving the audience sort of a ton of information right at the beginning through the actions on screen, but not through like exposition Um, and sort of more information than many of the characters in the film actually have. Uh, And the tension is created by, you know, what's going to become of this sort of innocent man. Right. Um, So the the priest uh, immediately uh, gets a confession from someone in his church that he's clearly like helped before he's a immigrant who uh, the priest has like gotten a job for him and his and like a home for his wife him and his wife and like helped them out sort of when no one else would and the guy sort of comes to him and he's like I have to confess something to you right away I've done something horrible you're gonna think I'm a terrible person but I have to tell somebody and the guy basically tells this priest within minutes of the movie opening that he has murdered a man that he has killed someone Um, And the priest is like listening to him in the confessional um, and he's kind of like, I don't know what to do, blah, 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 blah. And the thrust of the movie is because this was told to him in the confessional, the priest is not able to relinquish that information. Um, And then what ends up happening is, of course, the priest becomes the primary suspect in the murder investigation. (laughs) So now the priest is going to go to jail and be sort of ruined. His whole life is going to be ruined. Like everyone's going to think he's a monster and abusing his position. And the only way that he could clear his name is to sort of like go against his vows, which he can't do. Um, And there's a lot more to it than that (laughs) because there's like a reason that he becomes the uh, main suspect that goes beyond you know, there's things in his life and from his past uh, that pe- that someone has been trying to sort of blackmail him and this woman with. And there's all these different things. It's a it's a very like a lot of moving parts in the movie. But for, again, for like a 90 minute movie, it's very, very compelling. It's it's a lot happens in a very short amount of time, but it all makes you know, it all flows incredibly well. Um, it's a very somber and introspective movie. Um, very quiet and contemplative, and yet it's still incredibly suspenseful. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's one of like Hitchcock's absolute best movies, but it's it's a great movie, and definitely anyone that's fan of, you know fan of his work, um, I think would would really benefit from checking it out. Yeah, man, you know, it's funny. I, I, <laughs> as we talked about last week, I adore Hitchcock, but I, for whatever, you know, I adore Hitchcock, but there are a handful of movies out there that I, I just, I haven't seen, you know, probably even more than a handful considering the size of the man's filmography. And as it happens, I have not seen that one. So I'm going to go ahead and put it on the list and knock it out because one, I, it's, it's a Hitchcock I haven't seen. So that's, uh, I'm going to need to be taking care of that. But two, uh, just hearing you talk about it, that sounds fucking fantastic, man. So I'm definitely going to put that on the list. My final thing tonight, uh, I just happened to watch the pilot episode of the HBO Max series, The Nevers. Have you, uh, have you heard of this? I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it yet. So it's, you know, at first glance, if you were to watch any of the ads, it looks like kind of a, uh, Victorian era set, um, more of a fantasy, really. And, uh, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful world, great world building, uh, just a very neat story. It's about a, uh, 
it's about a group of women who run essentially an orphanage for as a, special people, is where you find out that there are people who have been quote unquote touched uh, by well, you don't know what. Uh, you will by the end of the opening episode, but I won't spoil it. But basically, something has happened, and it's given various people powers, as it were. And each person has a different power. It's almost like very X-Men, uh, or even, you know, maybe more accurate. Accurate. I, I, I don't know if you ever saw the Tim Burton movie, uh, Miss Peregrine's, uh, whatever the fuck, it was a long title, but uh, the Ava Green film. Um, did you ever see that? <clears throat> no, I know what it is, but I, I didn't watch it. It's yeah, it's like home for unusual children or something like that. I don't know, yeah. but um, they, yeah, I just um, it's fun enough. But yeah, the Nevers kind of takes that sort of uh, setup, and you find out in the course of the uh, first act that there are these people are being hunted by two different groups. Uh, so you have one group that is trying to save them and include them in the orphanage and you know uh keep them from harm and there's another you know more shadowy group that's trying to uh kidnap them for more nefarious purposes there are a lot of great performances in it um (laughs) nick frost shows up briefly and just inhales the scenery in a way that only nick frost can god bless him (laughs) um you know a lot of great set pieces and then you know here's the thing though i i it's (laughs) at a certain point it's not necessarily horror you know, or at least not with capital H's where, like I said, it's more of a fantasy, but when the villain is revealed, she is utterly nightmarish and kind of terrifying. And then there are other, you know, sort of foot soldier characters that are very, very horrific in its own way. And the whole thing feels kind of like, um, you know, if hammer did Buffy, that's kind of the tone, which, uh, you know, maybe it should be no surprise, or maybe it will be a surprise, because i got to tell you, uh, if you take in all of the marketing and watch the entire episode, it may come as a bit of a shock to you by the time the title cards run at the very, very end of the episode that the entire thing was masterminded by Joss Whedon, who apparently has nothing to do with the show anymore and has nothing to do with Warner Brothers, or rather Warner Brothers has nothing to do with him anymore. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, he did create the show. He was an executive producer. He wrote and directed the pilot. So I don't know... How much participation there is beyond the first episode, I don't know if that's going to be kind of a put-off for people, but, you know, in any case, it is in other hands. And I will say, so far as what's on the screen, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people are putting in a lot of great work in the show. It's a lot of fun, beautifully made, and definitely worth checking out, I think, Uh, you know, regardless of the fact that Whedon wound up becoming, or rather, revealed as being a bit of a bastard. So, not even a bit of a bastard. Does it it feel... You know how Joss Whedon's work all sort of feels Whedon-y? Does it feel Whedon-y? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. All right. I was just curious about that. Like, Um, honestly, if you were familiar with his work and you didn't know that he had anything to do with it, I think you would have been able to call it like 10 minutes into it. Yeah, that's what I was saying. This this feels really like Joss Whedon, like somebody do a Joss Whedon riff. And then at the end of it, directed by Joss Whedon. What? Written by Joss Whedon. What the hell? Created by Joss Whedon. Shouldn't this have been mentioned in the marketing? Executive produced by yeah. Joss Whedon. Holy shit. You know. Um, yeah. So, That's no, it is it is full on Whedon. But, again, it's, you know, one of the executive producers is also Jane Espenson, who worked on a lot of, uh, you know, Buffy stuff. And I'm kind of hoping that she takes the reins of the series after uh, he was uh, shown the door, as it were. Oh, that would uh, be good. I, I would be curious. That, I mean, yeah, it sucks that. 
Joss Whedon sucks. You know, I, there's a lot of things he's made that I used to have a lot of affection for. Most notably, uh, I would say for me would be Dr. Horrible sing along blog. I mm. love that. Love that fucking thing. Brilliant. Uh, and, uh, it's really a shame that he is such trash, but, um, yeah, no, I mean that, that sounds interesting. Yeah, no, it's very good. It's, um, it's a bit of a longer pilot too. I want to say it's uh, around like 75 minutes. So it really, mm. you know, it digs into the world building. There are a lot of great characters and it's, you know, it's a five years ago, if it had come out, it would have been one of those things where, you know, we would be celebrating the fact that we got more Joss Whedon, you know, it's just, uh, that's not the case now. And, uh, yeah. you're right. It does suck that he, uh, sucks you know it's uh it's <laughs> it unfortunate that uh yeah i mean Can you tell you know, i've had a beer already <laughs> yeah. um but no man i i just it's such a bummer because you know what i i loved buffy back in the day and you know what? i still love buffy i still love angel i think firefly is great serenity is fantastic uh dr horrible sing-along blog is still wonderful you know none of that changes because its creator winds up being a son of a bitch um you know, and the same is true of the Nevers. You know, I understand if people are a bit reticent to check it out, but all I would say is, you know, look, he's, I mean, they booted him, one, and two, there are loads of people whose time and effort and creativity went into making that show beyond Whedon. So, you know, if you don't want to watch it, fine, but if you do want to watch it, I don't think you should feel guilty for it. So, uh, and if you do watch it, I hope you dig it. All right, cool. All right. With all that said, Paul, we are something like uh, an hour in, maybe, maybe a little shy. I'm not exactly sure what the time is, but um, <laughs> in any case, we're going to go ahead and dive into the mummy, pro- uh, the movie proper. Um, let's go ahead and ready the television. So folks out there listening, if this is your first time, oh, I don't know if you chose the best episode to listen to for your first Hammer Pub, but you know what? You're here and we love you anyway. What we're going to do. Whether you're watching on VHS or uh, don't be watching this on VHS, it's a it's a trial. Who's watching this on VHS? They might be watching it on VHS, Paul. I'm not going to judge. But what we're going to do, whether you're watching it on that or the old Anchor Bay DVD or perhaps the new Scream Factory Blu-ray, which has a Studio Canal opening title card, we're going to move past all of that stuff and we're going to go to the very first frame of the actual film. And what that will be is kind of a speckly title card. So just as it starts to fade in. So let's everybody get there. We're going to do a countdown, press play together, then we're going to dive right into this commentary. Paul, you ready? I'm ready. Good deal. Let's do the countdown. You know what, Paul? I do the countdown all the time. How about you do the countdown? I can do the countdown. Do the countdown, Paul. All right. In five, Wait a second, four, Before you do the one. countdown. Okay, now, are, you, are, are, like, are we pressing play on one, or are you going to do like two, one, and then play? And then we well, press I was going to say on... play after one. Okay, so we press play on assumed. play. Should I, I, see, this is what happens when someone who doesn't normally do the countdown does the countdown. All right, I'll okay, do it so, again. So we press play so on play. So 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, play, and we're going to press play on play. Play on play. Gotcha. Play on play. Yep. All right. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, play. Wait, play now? Oh, my God. I'm just kidding. Cancel All the right. podcast. We are on the X-Men uh, title. <laughs> we are. I'm sorry. That's will always be the X-Men possible. title. Uh, and get ready for about two hours of prologue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? The, uh, that nice key lime green 
is, uh, you know, that's a choice to, uh, there's a lot of choices that are made. Yeah, they sure. Are. You um, know, what's funny about this prologue to me mm-hmm. personally is that, you know, there's this old screenwriting lesson, you know, they tell you to always show, not tell. Right. Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. utterly fucking fascinating to me about this prologue is that Hammer has decided to do both at the same time. This prologue (laughs) easily could have existed as just a series of scenes pretty much edited as they are now, only with us hearing dialogue, and it would have been fine. But for whatever reason, they have a narrator as well. And it's like, if you're going to have a narrator, let's go ahead and chop this some bitch down to about a minute and a half, two minutes of screen time, and then we'll move into the story proper. But Hammer didn't do that, did they? They just, they, I don't know what the hell the reasoning was here. Well, the the real problem with it is, with the narrator, it's presented almost like you're watching one of those, like, informational videos in history class. It's not Geo. The narrator, the narrator Richard... sounds as bored as he could possibly sound. Richard's he's throwing out, <laughs> yeah, he's throwing out so much information. And really, all it boils down to is, you know, there was a pharaoh, he had a son, his brother was jealous of their power. He killed them, and the son had to go on the run and took this shroud, this mystical shroud, with him, and was and died on the run and was buried with it. And now we're trying to find the shroud. Like that's that's all this really is trying to tell you. But instead, it's like eight minutes of convoluted voiceover narration, which makes which distracts from the actual images that you're seeing. Like you were saying, um, this a hundred percent could have been three minutes and no voiceover yeah and you know it's weird not only does that not help things you know looking past um uh the pacing which i mean it just absolutely murders its own pacing right out the gate you know but it also kind of hurts the movie in a way because in seeing all of this backstory in uh, <laughs> in excruciating, excruciating detail. In showing us Prim, you know, this character as he was as a living man, at length, it's somehow, for me anyway, let me know if you think uh, differently, but it kind of saps his mystique as the mummy. And as a result, he's not quite as frightening to me for whatever reason. He's certainly as much a threat as any other mummy was, but just... I don't know. There's just something about him where I'm just like, I don't really, I'm not, I don't feel like he is, he should not make more of an impression when he was alive in this prologue than he does as the mummy later on in the movie. That's not how these things are supposed to work. To a certain extent, I, I would agree. I mean, it's the mummy stuff. I've always found it hard to be frightened by a mummy in general. So I don't know if that's entirely the fault of the story there. In fact, the only real mummy that I ever thought was like effectively scary is obviously uh, Christopher Lee in the uh, Terrence Fisher mummy. I would also go you one further and say that the mummy and the monster squad is genuinely freaky. Upsetting. Uh, Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. Um, yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, but but I think the reason why is that there's a there's a menace and intensity there. There's a, an unpredictability. Oh, and maybe the mummy in um, 
the uh, Tales from the Dark Side movie. Like the oh my yeah oh my yeah that's the, the segment there one. yeah no, I take it back yeah that one, um but again there, there's there's a an intensity to that the, this mummy is very much the classic lumbering, slow moving, um you know zombie it, it feels more like a uh like a voodoo zombie than a mummy too because of how it's sort of controlled to kill. Yeah. The people in this film. Let's take a step back for a second and talk just about what this movie is and what your experience with it is. Is this the? Had you seen this before? So this for this podcast, this was actually a first time watch for whatever reason. I, and I feel like here's the thing, man. I've always painted myself as being a huge Hammer fan, and I think I am. But what's been kind of great about doing this podcast is that I've realized that. No, I've missed a good handful of Hammer movies over the years for whatever reason. And I got to tell you, maybe maybe I didn't seek out The Mummy Shroud simply because I'm not necessarily... The Mummy isn't a favorite, and I'm not even talking about Hammer. I'm just talking period. You know, if you, uh, if you don't have a uh, Christopher Lee or a Boris Karloff or a Brendan Fraser in a mo- your movie, I'm, I'm probably not going to be that excited about a damn Mummy film. And uh, so I think that's part of the reason that I'd never you know, really sought this one out, but I gotta tell you, man, after watching it, I think, um, you know, I was right to avoid it for all these years because (laughs) it is, uh, watching it for the first time. I, um, you know, you and I were talking off mic before we started recording. And I think you said something like, uh, you know, there's always something to like in a hammer film. And I won't deny you that there surely is like, I, there are certain things about this movie that are interesting and, kind of fun and well-made, but I got to tell you, last week, and we're doing all these movies in pretty much order, right? Like, last week was Frankenstein Created Woman, which I think is the very best of Hammer. That's just one guy's opinion, but that's mine. It's funny that right after Frankenstein Created Woman, we now have a film that, so far as I know, and so far from all the films that I've seen, this is this is my least favorite. This is the worst Hammer film that I've seen. This is, uh, mm. which is crazy, considering that it's 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 the final bray man that's that's a bit of a bummer yeah. that they went out with this well and I, yeah and i was gonna <clears throat> and i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about bray and and where this fell into and we kind of touched on that last week a little bit how this was sort of this is happening at a big trans, transitionary period for hammer um a lot of things are changing um you know when you talked about frank san created woman it's crazy to think that that movie would be terrence fisher's like third to last final film isn't that insane like that that's almost his last movie that's um, crazy and but then again it kind of like, makes sense because that is a guy at the very peak of his powers i think true yeah true but, but i also think that it, it means that a lot of things are changing and coming to an end and <clears throat> before going too deeply into that my so my take my general take and one thing I want to start doing in these commentaries is starting out with almost like a little bit of a synopsis. Sometimes I think we talk about the movies and we don't ever stop and say what they're about. <laughs> so if someone's just listening to this and maybe not watching the movie, they <laughs> they might be hard then for them to sort of... they're doing it wrong, Paul. <clears throat> get a sense. Okay, yeah. Well, I know how people are. So <laughs> the thing about this movie, though, is it's very, very simple. That's almost part of the issue with it is there's really not much to it. Um you know, we, we have this whole opening prologue that sets up what the mummy is. Um, and then we flash forward to sort of what 1920 
Uh, and it's, you know, a bunch of British dudes on a expedition to try to find this tomb. They find it, they get, you know, they get the shroud and they realize that there's a curse that's going to be placed on all of them. And one by one, the people who excavated the tomb are sort of picked off, uh, by various things, including a, you know, attacking mummy that that's what this movie is. Um, and, I'm, as you said, I'm not a huge mummy person. If I'm looking at the, I actually kind of dig that lime green font, actually. Um, I'm not looking at like the universal classic monster movies. The mummy's probably my least favorite and the one I'm least interested in. Um, so carrying that over to Hammer, I do really enjoy the Fisher mummy. Um, as we did a commentary on Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, I did not love that movie. And this movie sort of falls in line with with that one where it it just kind of underwhelms me on the whole. I don't want to be like negative this whole time, but it not enough happens. Um, There's not enough to latch onto. um, And and it's just kind of generally uninspired. It it all feels like stuff you've seen before, you know, like there's not a lot of interesting, unique takes on the mummy conceit and and frankly it really just feels like they knew they could make a mummy movie and it would probably make money yeah yeah it all feels very sort of phoned in you know on on i think every level um it's just it's it's I'll just go ahead and say it. If you don't want to be negative this entire time, I completely understand. I'll pick up the slack there, man, because I, 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 I got to shoot you straight here. I just find this movie to be damn dull. And I well, feel a little more comfortable in saying that simply because I have appreciated other works uh, from all of these people. You know, people sure. behind the camera, people in front of it. You know what? I'll be honest when I say that I've enjoyed other movies that they've made. And equally, I'll be honest about this movie. I think it's, yeah, it's a dud well, and you, you talk about um, other movies that, that they've made. I mean, so at the head of this movie is John Gilling, right? And and this is right after he did uh, Plague of the Zombies and The Reptile, which we both, uh, ju- I mean, not to speak for you, but we, we just talked about these movies. We both enjoyed, right? Yeah, like they were we, we both, both thought were good. Yeah. And as you know, I love Plague of the Zombies is one of my favorite Hammer movies. So I, I think 10? that. I think that he really can bring it. Um, And I was reading a little bit about this movie and I don't know if you saw much of his thoughts on this film, Um, but he pretty much uh, in multiple interviews came out to say that like he despises this movie. He, He easily thinks it's the worst thing he ever made and it's why he left. He never did anything else for hammer after this. I appreciate his honesty. Um, yeah, he and he wanted he only signed on for the movie apparently because he was getting really sick of TV. Um he wanted a break from television and he sort of wanted to do something where he wasn't under this like incredibly imposing system that was constantly controlling him. He was making a lot of money in TV. Um and he actually made it's funny, he made more money making episodes of television than he did directing feature films for Hammer. Um <laughs> But he loved the creative freedom that Hammer provided him. Um, and this movie was sort of enough to ruin it all for him and send him back to television. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I, now, I admittedly, I got to tell you, Paul, 
like I've and listeners out there, I just admit this freely. Uh, I've been super busy this past week. I've been kind of under the weather the last few days and then watching this movie and really not enjoying it. I didn't feel particularly pressed to do a deep dive into the film's making. So, Paul, I don't know if you have, like, if you listen to the commentary or watched anything, you know, about this movie, but I'll ask if you yeah. did, mm-hmm. what was the deal with Gillings sort of like, what, was he just not happy with the final product or was there any sort of interference from Hammer that he felt led to the movie being kind of compromised? Honestly, as far as I could tell, um, he there wasn't really any interference. This wasn't a movie that was like rocked by being over or under budget. It wasn't, I mean, it was coming at a time when hammer was running out of money. Bray was an unwieldy student, like for the production schedule they had to have Bray didn't make sense. Um, It was not cost effective to shoot there anymore. And that's why this was the last movie. Um, Not all of it was shot at Bray. Um, but it, it did sort of hinder the budget a little bit. I really think that he just, cause what happened was, uh, Anthony Hines wrote a story treatment called shroud of the mummy. Um, and he gave that to Gilling Gilling turned the treatment into a script. And, I think Gilling's expectation was there was going to be some discussions, some back and forths. I think he thought Hines was going to write his own draft based on what Gilling wrote. And literally within six days of Gilling giving his script back to Hammer, uh, they were shooting the movie. Wow. Yeah. So like, I think part of it was that there wasn't any sort of development. It was just go, 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 go. Um, and I don't think that he had time to sort of parse out what he wanted the movie to be creatively, which is what he was, why he was doing movies. He wanted to be more creative, right? He, he, he was a, he was a workman's director. He could go on to a, a, a show and just do what the showrunners wanted him to do and do it well. I mean, this movie is technically proficient. There's nothing wrong with it outwardly. You know, there's no uh, cinematic issues. Um, you know, it's, it's shot by Arthur Grant. Like it, it looks good. Um, the performances are generally fine, if not a little bit blasé, as we'll probably talk about. But right now we're kind of on the Gilling thing. Um, I just really think that he just wasn't happy with the initial, even though he wrote it, I don't think he loved what the story was. I think he realized even early on that it was a bit uninspired and he and derivative. And he just didn't love that. I mean, if you look at the Reptile and Plague of the Zombies, you cannot call those movies derivative or uninspired right like even if you don't like them they're they're, they are unique animals amongst hammer's canon this is not this feels like a a cash in on the mummy title and funny enough in many ways it was because you know we talked about this in um gosh in that four movie deal with dracula prince of darkness and plague of the zombies but in 1965 uh uh James Carreras struck a deal with 20th Century Fox, probably the best deal they ever struck. Uh, well, at least the most lucrative for an 11 film deal. Um, and the production schedule on those 11 films was incredibly quick. You know, that's why those they tried shooting those four movies back to back. And that didn't really work out. 
But one of those 11 films was to be another mummy movie uh, because they wanted to sort of delve into the the monster vaults, as it were. You know, one of them was a Frankenstein movie. One was a Dracula. Actually, several were. I think uh, the next Dracula is Dracula's risen from the grave was part of that deal as well. But so they were going to say, OK, well, we'll do another mummy movie because that, you know, that will sell. It's, it doesn't matter what the movie is. And so I think Gilling just got sort of roped into um, mining the monster catalog as opposed to doing something creative and original. Uh, and at the same time, they were shooting like one million BC, uh, which was much too big for something like Bray Studios. And I think that's what Hammer was starting to turn their attentions to and hoping that they were going to be able to make more of. And that was yet another reason they wanted to sort of detach from Bray. Um, so it really was just an interesting turning point in the studio's history. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't really have anything to add to that simply because I'm <laughs> looking at the movie right Sorry, now. Sorry. I probably got a little boring right there. I no, apologize. you didn't. No, not at all. Not at all. No, I, I do think that the history behind these movies sometimes are more interesting than the movies themselves. And that's definitely the case with this film here. Um, no, it is, it is curious though, that we're, their biggest success is still kind of ahead of them. Hammer with, uh, I think it was Dracula's risen from the grave, right? Was that their biggest financial success? But, um, well, it was one of them. 1 million BC was incredibly successful. Um, and it, it made a star out of Raquel Welsh. Um, and, and that was one of the first times that, that had really happened. I mean, they certainly made stars of like Christopher Lee, but Cushing was a star before he ever made a hammer movie. You know, he was a television star for years, you know, in Britain. I think that's why Cushing always got, you know, that's why if you look back, like Cushing seemed to always get pushed a little bit harder than Lee. Um, and they never, in a lot of ways, they kind of took Lee for granted in some, uh, in certain films in certain places. And I don't think they casted him as smartly as they could have throughout their history. Yeah. Um, I mean, there really aren't that many points in the Hammer catalog where Lee plays like a leading man, you know, the, the, like and, and I don't count Dracula because he's not he's 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 the lead insofar as like he's the reason you're seeing the movie, but he's the villain. And a lot of times Dracula is not in the movie as much as, you know, the protagonist. You know, he might only be in the film for a handful of minutes. I was going to say he rarely is. As a matter of fact, I'll go ahead and. I don't think he ever is, is he? The leading man? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, um, yeah, he is. And, uh, uh, oh, my God. Um, fuck. Uh, you know, Devil Rides Out. He's oh, no, I'm sorry. I was talking about the Dracula franchise. No, um, no. I, yeah, I was I was like, when's he a leading man? No, no. Yeah, in, in the Dracula franchise, he's never on screen all that much, right? I mean, like, in the later ones, he gets more screen time. Um, but in like the first Dracula film, what it's like, it's like under like 12 minutes or something crazy like that. He's not in the movie a whole lot. Um, but at any rate, uh, uh, this carvings really held up pretty well over the years. (laughs) Sure did. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Andre Morel coming back after uh, plague of the zombies. He is, I think, quite good in this movie as uh, yes. Sir Basil Walden. You know, it's funny that he uh, 
our next movie, the movie that we're going to be doing next week, is uh, Quatermass in the Pit. Now, I know we mm. haven't done the previous Quatermass movies here, you know, with Quatermass Experiment or Quatermass 2, because those definitely dip their toe in the horror territory, but I would say that they're more sci-fi. Quatermass in the Pit is full-on like a hammer horror film with... It just happens to be tinged with sci-fi. It's, it's a wonderful yeah. film, and I can't wait to talk at length about it. Again, on this podcast, I've already done that once with the uh, previous iteration of the show, you know, uh, when Paul Tremblay was on, and that was his movie to choose and discuss. And uh, it's a great film, but anyway, the, uh, that was the Hammer production of it, the one that we're going to be talking about. Quatermass in the Pit had previously been produced as a BBC television show, like, uh, or rather, miniseries as it were. Um, or maybe even a one-off. I forget a serial, like how many episodes they wound up doing. But Andre Morel actually played Bernard Quatermass. I said Quatermass. Oh my God, Paul, you can give me hell. It's hard to say <laughs> it's okay. his first I name. Do it. I do it all the time. I, I've gotten better though. I've been much more cognizant of it since you called me out. Well, like if I, if, no, if I say the titles, it's easy. Like, listen to me. Quatermass Experiment? No problem. Quatermass 2? Sure. Quatermass in the Pit? Got it. Bernard Quatermass. Not damn it. You know, it's it's hard to say both. Bernard yeah. Quatermass. There we go. But anyway, Andre Morel had actually play, played Quatermass in Quatermass in the Pit. So it's neat that he already, you know, beyond obviously appearing in the previous Hammer production. But, you know, it's cool that he was already kind of steeped in that world in a way. You know what I mean? So it makes all yeah. the sense in the world that if they couldn't get a Peter Cushing, if they couldn't get a Christopher Lee, but they needed a commanding presence to play this... Uh, this right bastard of a character, as it were, then it makes sense they would have gone with Morel. Yeah, and apparently Morel only did this movie because he had such a great time working on Plague of the Zombies. Like, he really respected John Gilling. He really loved that movie and the experience of making it. So he was sort of willing to return for this. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, I've read some different things and some different opinions on it. I, I generally think the performance in, the, in this film are, are good. Like, I have no issue with the yeah, with no, many the of the performances. I think and I think Andrew Morell particularly does a good job. And there's a lot going on with his character, especially because he's sort of the first victim of the curse. And I like that the way he's sort of attacked by it is by other means than the mummy. I think that's kind of a cool element that I almost wish the movie had explored a bit more. Like maybe the mummy's just one component of the curse. Um, it, it would have been neat to see people being uh, killed off in different, unique ways, almost like Final Destination y, uh, you know, where it's like weird things are happening and they're dying. Um, meanwhile, you have this potential mummy threat. Like I, I think there's a lot of interesting directions you could have taken it that would have made it feel maybe different than some that of the other movies. sounds like a far better movie than the one that we're <laughs> currently watching well and yeah I, <laughs> I i and again i'll admit that this movie does lack uh when it comes to the narrative and what's really happening and and it's a weird movie because you know andre morel if you look at the cast listing like he's he's first listed but I don't know that I would call him the main character. And then I hesitate to even say who is the main character in this movie. Well, that's this kind of the same case with the previous mummy that we watched. Right. That was yeah, one of we the, had uh, same conversation. <laughs> the charges that we leveled at the movie, which was uh, who the hell is leading this thing? Like who, you know, it's, you can't call it an ensemble necessarily, but neither still can you say that there is a clear 
defined lead character. There's no entry point into the story. We're just viewing a series of events. You know, that's that's all this movie is. And it's not, as a result, it's not engaging. Um, it wasn't to me. Now, I will say, that snake sequence actually made me jump because how often do you see a real snake and a real human being in the same frame with the snake striking without it being CG or an effect of some sort? I'm pretty sure they got some poor grip or stand in or stunt double bitten by a damn snake for this movie. Um, Because Holy shit, you know, that was, that was, that is one hell of a close call if they didn't get bitten. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hope they're well, or they were well, anyway. I, I hope that wasn't the end of them, but I will say, hell of a moment. <laughs> I, doubt, I doubt people were, were murdered on the set of this movie. I would hope Paul, not. who can say? Who can say? It's, uh, yeah. It is oh. funny that her shirt is the exact same color as the uh, the the title treatment in the movie. <laughs> the opening credits, that is curious. And that is, who? Okay, I looked this up. Is it Maggie, Maggie Kimberly? Kimberly? She didn't you know, do many movies um she had a short-lived career and she was married to some like royalty somewhere she was like a model uh i was reading a little bit about her she i actually think her performance is really good in this movie and i kind of wish she had done more films she is quite good i think there and this was touched on i i did i lied i did watch a bit of the behind the scenes documentary um but it i think I wonder if she weren't cast for more cynical reasons than her acting ability, uh, especially given how the marketing campaign chose to utilize her, which is a mm-hmm. lot of, uh, you know, cheesecakey cleavage bearing mm-hmm. shots. And it's curious that that was the case because I don't know that that was the first time that Hammer had ever tried this, but by this point, you know, it seems like a transitionary period. Not only are they leaving Bray, you know, but also we're just now, not even in this movie, but again, with the marketing, we're just starting to get into the sort of um, um, <laughs> the racier aspects of Hammer. And, you know, oh. at a certain point, you know, the movies will become a little more exploitative in that sense. They'll become a little racier. And, you know, we start getting into, you know, I, I suppose what uh, 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 an enthusiastic fan would call Hammer glamour, as it were. They, they had done that before. Um, like putting the heroine, like Curse of the Werewolf, for example, like they had, you know, the, uh, the, the woman like on the, on the like scantily clad being attacked by the werewolf when she never actually like shares a scene with the werewolf. That was something Hammer would do to sort of titillate But would you say that her costume in the marketing though was still somewhat representative of her costume in the movie still sure uh, yeah i mean whereas you're in right this in this one, movie like, like if you've seen it like she is that's pretty claire much her costume never, yeah claire is never like scantily clad in fact claire is not even really she's she's barely sexualized at all i mean there there's definitely some sort of like male gazy shots <laughs> admiring uh her her beauty and she certainly has like uh, a strong screen presence of course um, but her costuming is is fairly normal, you know, that she's dressed uh, not very provocatively, whereas in the posters, you know, like you said, very heavy cleavage being attacked by the mummy in sequences that never occur in the film. So it's it's trying to get butts and seats selling sex 
Um, and, and that was a, a move that the careers has started to embrace as the sixties transitioned into the seventies. Okay. I'm and not pretty sure soon... people are able to hear it out there, Paul. I hate to interrupt. I just wanted to explain, uh, there are sirens all around me right now. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if somebody's in it's trouble. Back. I'm not sure if I've finally been found out. Uh, it's, it's time for coming for you. Well, it was, it was, <laughs> a, it was time. Um, but, um, yeah, no. So that's what that is. Sorry. Anyway. No, you're fine. Um, no, yeah, you're right though. Uh, this was definitely, it was becoming more heavy handed at this point in hammers, you know, situation. Yeah. Because we have after this coming up, what do we have? Let me consult the filmography as it were. Uh, we have after the mummy shroud, uh, coming up, which this is actually, uh, Okay, so Quatermass, not so much. But after that, we have The Viking Queen, Slave Girls. Not that these are movies that we're going to necessarily review. But, um, you know, The Devil Rides Out certainly, you know, pushes the envelope a little bit. And then once you start getting to, like, Dracula who's risen from the grave, and even, uh, well, eh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed obviously has uh, its issues, which are icky, and we can discuss them when we That'll actually get around to that. That'll be a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that it'll be that tough. I think you and I will probably be in agreement on it, but um, right. But just just to discussing face it, face yeah. it, because I'm sad about it. Like because I love the Frankenstein franchise, and it pisses me off that that's a part of it. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. No, no, you're. I mean, we're trying to talk about anything but the movie here. Um, and no, I mean, I have. You know, <laughs> there's. <laughs> that, that's that's just what happens in our commentaries. Um, one thing I found a little interesting was that one of the reasons it's it's uh dated in the 19 in 1920 is that it was trying to sort of reference the uh excavation of king tut's tomb um which was supposed to be cursed and there were some like odd accidents that occurred after it um like several people like several of the people that were involved in the excavation were killed in weird sort of mysterious ways um, and just a lot of odd coincidences were happening and hammer was trying to sort of like reference that and embody that with this film. Uh, and I just, I found that really fascinating because it's so far removed from it. You know, I can't imagine like the early twenties excavation of King Tut's tomb was on anyone's mind when they were going to see the mummy shroud, you know, like, but it's, but it was something that they were definitely trying to tie into. This is a very, very well lit tomb. <laughs> is that unfair? Is that unfair to say? It's not unfair to point out. It looks like there's sunlight, right? Like, yeah, there's so be why... some sort of hole in the ceiling or something? Yeah, they probably should have just used that. Climbed in yeah. from the top? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know why they didn't think about it. Use some rope <laughs> instead of uh, breaking through the damn wall. Um, you know. it, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, it, it's excavating a tomb is no easy chore you know that you never know what you're gonna have to do indiana jones would have fared pretty well in this situation i think yeah so? i don't know maybe maybe <laughs> not about... uh in 1920 yeah sure probably he uh no he'd be very young then wouldn't he he'd be like river phoenix <laughs> or sean whatever his name is i, um, I don't know but I do have a question. Yeah. Because we were talking 
a little bit before we started recording. He did not uh, hold up well. He didn't. That's all. Although I think I actually think the mummies in this movie look pretty cool. And we'll talk about the uh, the look of the mummy when we actually get to the mummy. But even this one like looks, I don't know, pretty, pretty interesting and pretty accurate. Oh, to yeah. like a rotted body and it's it's it serves the movie well I, I i have no issue with any of the like technical elements of the film no no i no. think it's it's very well made um you know yeah there's some inexplicable lighting in in the dark tubes it probably shouldn't i'm not like really okay let, let me go ahead and say this like i'm not <laughs> knocking the movie for its lighting choices you, can. you know yeah. no 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 i don't th- i but it's just you know, it's like with any movie. If it's losing you on one level, then inevitably you're going to nitpick on others because there's nothing well, else to sort of grasp onto. And again, and well, we not to belabor it, but like its biggest sin is that it's boring. Yep. It's a very boring movie. Not a lot happens, and even though you've got a lot of great performers, nobody is in a position to sort of electrically command the screen right and like even when we get to um some of the stuff back at like the hotel uh with um with stanley preston who's sort of i guess i guess the main guy a bit he's he's the asshole though that's the weird thing is he's such an unlikable john phillips in this movie is so unlikable that like you you can't really think of him as the protagonist. He's not even an anti-hero. You just don't like him. He's just an asshole. Um, and he's a blowhard. And he lives far too long. Like he's the kind of character that should have died early and Andrew Morrell should have lived. And then we would have had maybe a different situation going. But my question to you was going to be around uh, the Michael Ripper of it all. So as Long Barrow, we, we, we kind of mentioned this early, but what's your take on Michael Ripper in this movie? Um, I, I feel like you're setting me up because we have, uh, <laughs> I feel like you're teeing me up so that you can then tell me I'm wrong, Paul. Is that what's happening here? No. Is that no, what's happening, Paul? Not at all. Paul, I, just, I, I, I think it's a good, I think it's a good talking point. That's all. No, I do think having watched this movie, and here's the thing, much, I will agree with you. I don't think there is a single bad performance in this, but much like so many other aspects of this movie, I think Ripper is kind of... His performance, his presence in this movie, it feels phoned in a little bit. And I'm not saying that he... Obviously, the man showed up to work, right? He knows how to deliver a line. He's created a character, sure. But you can also... There's an energy with him that feels kind of muted that I I haven't seen from him up until this point so far as what we've seen him in in Hammer, even much smaller roles. That guy has, in his own way, kind of a not imposing but certainly a commanding presence you know what i mean um yeah and i don't get that from him here and one could argue that the character shouldn't have that but he should at least be interesting and i know that he is a clever enough actor to have even taken a character that might have been underwritten on the page and to have made him more interesting and to me i think he's I think his character is just every bit as dull as everyone else is in the film and every other aspect of the film is. He's not, um, 
he's just blah, man. Like everything else in this film, it's just, this is an utter shrug of a film to me. And sadly, Michael Ripper cannot escape the, uh, the, the, the madness of it all. (laughs) Well, uh, I, 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 I agree on some level that, you know, there's there's definitely a blasé attitude that the film sort of has towards its characters. I think that's part of the issue is it's an ensemble film um, with a bunch of people that feel really sort of disparate. Like there isn't a great uh, camaraderie that exists between much of the cast, right? Like usually in an ensemble film, you kind of want a great, um, dichotomy between the various people. So you care about their plights a little bit more and their plights become more intertwined. And while of course, all of these people's plights are certainly intertwined, it just boils down to the fact that they can't leave Egypt They're They have to stay because of a legal matter. Um, and therefore they all know they're sort of doomed. Um, and each one of them handles it in a, a different manner. Um, and we don't get many people to really latch on to. And I think what Michael Ripper does with his character, because for all intents and purposes, Michael Ripper was cast. And I would disagree that he didn't do anything with his role. I, I think that Ripper was cast as sort of the sniveling right-hand man to, um, you know, the the Stanley Preston character. Um, and there's a lot of great little moments uh, that he throws in there. Like, for example... Um, there's a scene where early on uh, Stanley is kind of like, Hey, go get me a beer. And Ripper is kind of like kind of winces at that request and hesitates. And the guy keeps talking. He says, Oh, and make sure it's cold. And he kind of like looks down and looks to the side and he's like, yes, yes, sir. And he goes and gets it. And it almost gives you the impression. It's like, Oh, that guy's probably a mean drunk. And, and, you know, Longborough knows this from experience. And yet that's just something I'm sort of inferring from the performance. Um, and I doubt that that was scripted. You know, I, I feel like there's little nuances that Ripper is putting into this lackey character. You know, there's the scene where uh, Stanley's recounting the events of the of excavation and uh, he's making shit up. He's like, I had to hold men at gunpoint and demand that they did this. And Ripper is kind of like taking it down, but giving him a look. You know, there's he he infuses a humanity into that role that could have easily been a one note role. Um, and to the point where by the end of the film, not to jump too far ahead, when when Ripper's character is finally sort of under attack from the mummy there's a real sense of empathy that comes through for him more so than I would say any other victim. I, I, I think when Ripper and I, I watched this with my kids and they were like really, really sad when Ripper bit the dust, they were like, Oh, not him. He was nice. Like they felt bad for him and they didn't feel that way about any other character. And I think it was because Ripper brought a humanity to the role that did not have to be there. Like if I was going to single anyone out in the film as being like the standout performance for me, it would be him. Paul, you mentioned, I'm just curious. Uh, you mentioned your children watched the movie with you and I know that they've watched a lot of hammer with you, which I think is awesome. And they've liked, I could say probably a good deal of the hammer they've watched with you. Right. Mm-hmm. 
What did they think of this one? Um, they they thought it was fine. They didn't not like it. They didn't love it. Um, it didn't hold their part of the problem was it didn't really hold their attention. Uh, you know, there there wasn't enough there to keep them engaged, especially my seven year old. She was just kind of in and out of it, like you know, she just nothing I mean, that, was really gripping was, her. That was me too, man. So I, I yeah, I, I didn't blame her. Response. Yeah, and. <laughs> I wasn't even going to have them watch this one with me because now that we're getting into the later years of Hammer, I'm a little bit more nervous about it because there is some stuff like, you know, that I would not show them. Um, But luckily, this one is pretty tame. There's not really anything in it that I felt was too far out of the realm. And it's one of those movies that sort of cuts away, you know, And, and I actually and we haven't gotten to a mummy kill yet, but. That is one thing about the film I do think is done well. Um, I I do like the mummy attack stuff um, and how it's shot. I think Gilling did bring his A game to to that horror element of the movie. I do love the sequence with Morel on the run, um, sort of. Right, and you know, it's it's. <sighs> It's not super exciting, but he he kind of sells the hell out of it, you know. And I I do think your idea is fascinating. The idea that Morell and Phillips really like their characters' fates rather should have been swapped. Like we should have lost Preston halfway through, and Walden should have been around to at least the final act, you know. Um, I do like that idea, but you know the movie uh, the movie had other plans. Well, I think there's something to be said about, especially in a movie like this, like, again, nowadays, it's all about the antihero. It's all about somebody who's flawed or even I'll go so far as to say evil or evil might be too extreme. But like, uh, for all intents and purposes, a a bad guy as the as the hero, as the main character in your story, because it's interesting to follow a flawed character. But Stanley Preston isn't a flawed bad guy. He's just an asshole. Yeah. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing else to him, but that. So it's not like we're getting some sort of interesting character study with him. We're just having to deal with this fucking prick for the whole movie. And you just want to see him die. Like, that's why he's there. Um, he, there's nothing else to him. Uh, so it seems a bit of a waste to take someone like Andre Morel's character, the, the Basil Walden character, um, who actually does have an interesting sort of character beneath his, you know, his, his worried face. I was going to say, uh, I mean, he is, he is in his own right, an asshole too, but no, he is. Yeah. Well, I, there's always that, that element of that in, in the mummy movies, particularly in hammer, like that, that sort of imperialist, I'm going to go to a foreign country and claim something and say it's mine and bring it back to my country and put it on display. You know, there, there's this, element of that, that that I think is just present in all of their mummy movies. Um, in this one, it's downplayed a lot more. Like it's not as explored and as interestingly as it is, even in curse of the mummy's tomb, which is another movie that to be honest, I don't really like that much. Um, but here it's, it's there it's present, but it's not explored at all really in the plot. Um, I, uh, I, Paul, I gotta tell you, whenever she comes on screen, like I, all I hear in my head is kind of like, 
Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn <laughs> moon is bright. Is that wrong of me? No, but I, but I actually will say that I do like these sequences are fun. Like this is this is way more oh, fun. She's, she is great watching... in it. And this guy on screen right now oh, yeah. is an actor. Uh, the actor who's playing Hazmid is an actor named Roger Delgado, who's noteworthy for having played the first version of the big uh, Doctor Who arch villain, the Master. Uh, and he's great. He kind of set the template for that villain in that show. So uh, very sad sort of story. He uh, he was, you know, he did this. He did a, you know, a few things, but he mostly rose to prominence playing the master in, I believe, the third Doctor era uh, of Doctor Who. That would have been alongside John Pertwee. And he was working on another movie and got into a car accident along with a couple of, couple of other people working on this film production and uh, died at the age of 55. Oh, wow. That's horrible. Just, it's sad. Uh, apparently his death is what caused uh, John Pertwee to actually step away from the uh, the series. Sounds oh, really? Great. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Which he, I mean, up until that point, he was the longest serving doctor. He... Uh, I think the first doctor was three years. The second was three. Pertwee had put in five, and who knows how long he would have gone. But um, yeah, I guess after losing uh, losing his co-star in such a you know horrible fashion, he uh, he sort of you know elected to hang it up. Yeah, I can understand that. That's that's awful. I do like the mummy's eyes opening. It's <laughs> fake as hell, but it's charming as can be. Oh yeah. So uh, now that we have the mummy on full display, I think we can sort of go into that a little bit. I... Can I ask you a question about it? Uh, sure. Considering the backstory, Paul, and this is again, this goes to me being nitpicky as all hell. Who, um, who mummified Prim? Hmm. If it were just Prim and Kato Bay, and Prim took care of Kato Bay, clearly, who, uh. Who did the wrapping and embalming and whatnot? Who I guess I just, up in this I, guess I just take it as that was just what they did to pharaohs. Like someone there somewhere just would have done that because just happened across them and said, "Well, like you, you don't think the entire, I, I don't really think like his entire community was wiped out. I think just his, like him and his guards, like." I don't think like I, everybody I like that... they were they were fully exiled. Like I don't know who would have, and especially if it's built into the backstory that Prim actually took care of Kato Bay. Like I, you know, it's yeah. are we to take it that Prim had a life beyond that moment? Because I kind of took it like he those were his final hours too. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I just I just assume that whoever killed him did it. Look like at this. Look at the reds, the blues, the green, and the four. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, this is fantastic. Much All like, this stuff is... And, like, seeing him in the crystal ball as opposed to facing him directly. This like, is a marvelous... That story. is beautiful. And it's creepy, and it's effective, and you don't need to see the mummy skull. Did you see the uh, the subtitles? Are you watching with subtitles? Oh, yes, yeah. I love the the quotes skull crunches. <laughs> look, at the, uh, look at the push in, like when Roger Delgado yeah, walks up and parts the shade, holding on her eyes as she is obviously gleeful. This, you know, we talked about this during the Curse of the Mummy's Tomb as well. But this movie, 
comes to life during the mummy attack sequences. Yes, you know, absolutely. There, there is no other sequence in this movie, I would argue not even the mummy attack sequences, which are, again, good and definitely the better parts of the movie, but nothing else in the rest of this film compares to that particular sequence as far as creativity, energy, just everything about it is fantastic. And it's like, damn it, why couldn't the rest of the movie operate at that level? Well, and if you showed me just that sequence, I would be so pumped to see this film. Oh you know God. what I mean? Like, I would be so excited. And, and and that's one of the reasons that I don't, like, totally dismiss this film. Because it has moments that are great. Um, and I do really like, um, we, we talked, you know, we started talking about The Mummy. One, I love that this mummy, it, it's the only Hammer mummy that was actually based on a real mummy. Um, they They actually, like... they went to like the London uh, museum and like studied a real mummy and just like basically point for point remade the mummy. So the mummy on screen just looks like the real mummy in the museum. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons it looks different and is a little bit creepier in some ways. Uh, So I think that's pretty awesome. Um, And like the the makeup effects and everything that went into it like it was a uh Les Bowie creation um and he I you know Les Bowie does, for whatever reason doesn't get as much like uh word as um Roy Ashton you know Roy, Roy Ashton did a lot of amazing stuff but like Les Bowie also did a lot of amazing stuff but I just don't hear him talked about as much he doesn't come up quite as often um and he, I just think this mummy is like one of his cooler creations. No, I agree. I don't know that I would put this on par with uh, Lee's mummy from the first film, but this is easily, this is far better than the mummy from the previous uh, film. Yeah. And, and like, we'll get to it, but the disintegration at the end is amazing. Like, I think, I think that's such a cool thing. And like it, I, I would put that on par with like the Dracula disintegration. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. And again, all of those moments are like, you know, it's a damn shame that the, uh, the film surrounding these little gems of moments, uh, just don't quite measure up. Well, the problem is at this point, what the movie becomes, and I'll give it this, it kind of, you know, we, we, we talked, um, we've talked at length before, about how Hammer movies often, in certain ways, certain Hammer movies kind of serve as like proto slashers, like particularly the Dracula cycle, like really feels like a like a forerunner to like a slasher franchise. You know, like it, like the way he's sort of killed and resurrected at the beginning of each one, and the loose continuity, and one of the entries not having him in it. Like it, it very, very much feels like it could be like a forerunner to Friday the Thirteenth or something. Oh, totally. Um, this movie very much becomes like a slasher at this point, where like it's just a bunch of characters stuck in a place, kind of waiting to be picked off. Um, and then we get kill sequences every once in a while and there's not a lot of story. It's just kind of that. Um, so, I mean, I'll give it the fact that this was pretty early for that kind of thing in horror. 
Um, I'm not saying that this movie went on to influence like big slashers or anything like that. And certainly at this point in Italy, there were slashers happening. Like slashers existed by now um, in the late 60s. Uh, if you look at like what Mario Bava was doing and what Dario Argento was about to do in like 1970. Um, but like this does sort of like serve as an interesting approach to what was going to become kind of the main thing in the horror genre in the, in about, you know, 20 years. <laughs> no. And I do wonder, like I, you know, because you and I've talked about this before, you know, the Dracula franchise is certainly kind of a proto slasher franchise. So, you know, between that and the mummy series, certainly there were things happening in Italian horror with the, uh, you know, kind of proto slashers there with like the jolly and whatnot. But, do you feel like Hammer might have been directly responsible for some of the uh, the the glut of eighty slasher films that we got? You know, did the kids who grew up watching Hammer in the fifties and sixties, you know, and became filmmakers themselves in the eighties? Do you think they drew a lot on him? I mean, obviously, like, well, I think, I think he's I on think record, horror... like Tom Lachlan or McLaughlin, uh, you know, yeah, clearly they're... drew up on Hammer for uh, Jason Lives. But I'm just wondering, like, the idea. Uh, maybe not even the filmmakers themselves, but what about just the studio template of bringing these characters back for go round after go round after go round? That didn't really, yeah. you know, it existed somewhat with Universal, but much more so with Hammer, I would think. That's what I was going to say. I think I think there's a lot of dotted lines to be drawn. Um, I think so. So primarily, what Hammer did, I think, for American distribution and studios, was shown the power, the sticking power of a recognizable character was like the right actor and certain actors recurring. Like, you know, it it got to the point where 20th century Fox was kind of like, we only want a Dracula movie of Christopher Lee's in it. And that wasn't something they would have said five years before, you know, like they learned that. um, And they didn't forget that, (laughs) you know, even as hammer went out of style um, there, there's something to be said about the continuity, even if it's, even if it's very, very slight. Um, in fact, narrative doesn't even really matter. It's, it's that image, it's that person, it's that character. And I think hammer really solidified that I would say a bit more even than universal. I, I think it starts with universal. I think we, it's undeniable that that's where it begins. Um, but I think hammer brought it to the next level with certain key characters um, and the longevity of those franchises. Um, And then I also think they, they put in certain narrative components that would go on to influence other things. And then I also think that they influenced the filmmakers that would then influence the filmmakers that were making movies in the eighties. Right. So like Mario Bava was definitely watching hammer movies. Um, and he was making stuff that was going to influence, you know, other people. Romero watched Hammer movies before making Night of the Living Dead. Um, he, he liked Hammer movies like that. Some of those movies influenced Night of the Living Dead. I, I, as I told you, I'd be shocked if he didn't see Plague of the Zombies. Like Plague of the Zombies is a hundred percent influential to Night of the Living Dead. There's no way that it wasn't. <laughs> and and that's awesome. Like, that's a good thing. And then Night of the Living Dead influenced a whole generation of people. 
So in that way, Plague of the Zombies did too. You know, any, and that's what I love about horror is that like, even if a movie didn't directly influence someone, if it's legacy did, or if it's legacy impacted a different movie that then became influential, then it's important to that story, you know? And, and, and that's why I think context really matters when we're talking about these movies. Yeah. Do you find it problematic at all that the heroes are all, uh, all white in this? Whereas we have, uh, Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. With Car- <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, that's a, that's a thing. And uh, that's sort of a, I mean, a sixties British and American well, it's, I mean, you know, when I ask if it was problematic, like, obviously, we, we, we both can agree on that, I think. But I also was teeing myself up to point out that, you know what, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about um, the, <laughs> which it's crazy to see on social media so much support for the 1999 Mummy. I remember when that movie came out, like, dyed-in-the-wool horror fans were kind of looking down their noses at that film. Meanwhile, Teenage Me was absolutely loving every bit of it. So it's nice to see people doing fan art of it and talking about Brendan Fraser and how great that I've movie is. I've always loved that movie. Yeah, it's that so great. good. It's so good. But one of the great things about it, I love that, um, you know, with the character of the Magi, you know, if that character had existed in a Hammer film, he would have been a villain. You know, like, <laughs> pure and simple. But I love the fact they actually gave, you know, a bit of proper representation in a mummy movie and didn't just simply other, you know, everyone other than the white heroes who have strode into Egypt, you know? Um, That's true. And and that is an issue with the film and and a lot of hammer films. Um, And not only just that, like there's also a lot of situations where they, um, yeah, well, we'll get into that. I mean, there's some stuff, there's stuff in almost every hammer movie where you can point to it and say, Oh, well, that's, that's disappointing, <laughs> you know, that, that they made that choice. Um, I will say one thing I do appreciate about this film uh, is, is the Claire Maggie Kimberly's Claire character is not just a sort of a pretty face to be a victim. She's not hiding in a corner. She's actually incredibly intelligent. She's thoughtful. There's even suggestion that she might have sort of a psychic connection to what's going on which I think is really interesting and I kind of wish it had been explored more. That's, but a, it's thing. Also it's like, that's a neat idea. Below the surface. I don't know. I'm, I'm like torn between. So I'm personally torn between the fact of like, I like that there's sort of little clues that there, there's a connection there. Even in the fact that she works in a field that, that ties her to ancient Egypt. It makes me wonder like, is she a descendant? Is she, you know, does she have some sort of, familial tie to this that's that's giving her information that's giving her some sort of power um i like that it's it's subtle and not explained but at the same time it feels like even if you're going to handle it like that we needed a bit more than what the movie gives us yeah yeah i agree i can't argue with any of that and it's you know I guess that's the thing that bugs me the most about this movie is much like any Hammer production, you know, the, the, the possibilities, you know, regardless of budget, regardless of the time that they had to shoot and whatnot, like it, it's with what they had, they could have done so much more. And it bums me out that you can see all the potential just laying there. Yeah. And this is ultimately the result, you know, of everyone's hard work. It's a bummer. Another another kill sequence bathed in gorgeous red light. Oh, I love it. 
And again, like you, Italian influences are seeping in. There's green light behind him, red light in the foreground, which is it's obviously like a uh, a development room, so the red light kind of makes sense. But slightly canted angles, like there, there's actual style and thought that went into the filmmaking again, during this. This stuff. is during this is during an attack sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love the attack sequences. Are, if someone made a super cut of the attack sequences, this would look like <laughs> the greatest movie ever made. Like you'd just be like, I can't wait to see this. This is kind of a brutal sequence too. The uh, although acid. I gotta ask, like, did did Prim just instinctively know that he was holding acid and understands what what uh, what's gonna happen there when he breaks the bottle over this poor bastard? Yes, <laughs> I don't know. Um, one interesting thing is the mummy uh, is played by Eddie Powell, who was the uh, stand-in for. Christopher Lee on the original mummy. Really? Yeah. And he's also uh, the Lee's stand in in Dracula and several other films, but it's kind of funny that he basically played the mummy in the original. So there's a little bit of a tie there. The other thing I was reading is that uh, Michael, well, not reading, but I just noticed this is Michael Ripper. The only one that was in all three mummy. He was in all three. He was a, he was like a very, like a random off character in the first one like a no-name side character and then he had like a very very small bit part in the curse of mummy's tomb and then he had a bigger role in this so he was in all three films i'll be damned yeah he could be the linchpin to the continuity we we could make the continuity work if we claim that he's the same person is michael (laughs) ripper the key to into the mummy verse the mummy verse yeah so uh Damn, I Dare I call it that. the MC the MCU? <laughs> <laughs> not to be like the MMCU, the MMYCU. Uh, okay. No, I. Uh, you know, you say that, and we're joking, but at the same time, I would watch the hell out of that movie. <laughs> I would. Uh, I would ball. I would too. Yeah, the it's funny you bring up the Brendan Fraser mummy because um, so as I as I've mentioned many, many times before, and I'm sure I'll mention again when I was younger, I wasn't really a horror fan. Um, so I saw the mummy just because it was a big action movie. I, I never even thought of that film as remotely related to horror. I only ever saw the mummy as an action film when I was younger. I, it wasn't I until I was it. older that I was like, Oh, this is kind of horror adjacent, isn't it? And like, I was like, Oh no, it's based on a big horror property. Yeah. I just legitimately, when I was a teenager, was like, Oh, it's a cool new action movie. Uh, and I adored it. All my friends adored it. I never had any inkling that there was any sort of like controversy or that people didn't like it or what. I just thought it was a beloved big action film. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always been a huge mummy fan. I didn't like the sequel. I'll, I'll admit that. I um, love I, the mummy. Don't like returns. this. I I hated it. I I hated it. I mean, I'll be honest. I, but I I'll I'll say this. I hated it so much that I've only ever watched it once in the theater, and I've never seen it since. So well, I give it another chance. Don't it is... know. Maybe I would like it. But I remember seeing it, and I remember them being in like this weird like blimp thing, and like I was just thinking, this is so fucking stupid. I just I just remember thinking it was dumb. I was like, this is so dumb and so unnecessary, and the CGI was horrible. And I just remember just hating everything about it, and was like, ah, I just want to watch the first one. 
but I love the first one. I I adore the second one too. The second one is kind of a shameless retread of the first one, but just on steroids. But it's maybe, just so maybe much. Maybe I'll like it now. <laughs> maybe it's just so. I, it, it's it's I don't so know. much. I, damn I, I, I fun, should give man. it. I, I guess I didn't have fun when I saw. No, I will say when maybe. you get around to the uh, the what is it? The tomb of the mummy emperor. Or I never watched fuck, that, the yeah. dragon emperor. It's okay. So they got they lost Stephen Summers, but they brought on Rob Cohen, who directed uh, oh, like the Fast and the Furious and Triple X, and I forget what else. And it's man, you, you they lost Rachel Vice as well. Uh, so they brought in Maria Bello, who I love. Maria Bello is great, but they brought her in to play Evie, and it's just. And I'm not saying I'm not prefacing it by saying like I, I it, it's not Maria Bella's fault, but the movie that results is just a charmless bore of a film. Um, you know, and I it's funny hearing people talk about it and coming to the same conclusions like myself and all my buddies did 20 years ago back in the day when we first loved the movie and we watched them several times in the theaters, which is especially around the time that uh, Stephen Summers did Van Helsing, which was why not just take Rick and Evie and drop them into different scenarios with different universal monsters? No, okay, I agree. We, we, so yeah. the mummy was the first one. Sure. The sequel should have been like a Dracula film or, yeah, Dracula. Or, a, yeah. or a Wolfman film and have Rick and Evie constantly running afoul of different creatures. You know, uh, it bums me out that they never did that. It bums me out that, you know, we didn't get any more than what we did because, they're such great characters and they're so damn charming. And uh, I did think it was kind of interesting that uh, when they tried getting the dark universe off the ground and they did the Tom Cruise mummy, which is not great, but it's nowhere near as I, I bad still as haven't, I still haven't watched it. I've Paul, not watched it. It's yeah. okay. Now is the time to do it because undoubtedly your expectations are super low because of the sort just, of, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the I, beating that that movie has constantly taken over the years. Everybody seems to despise it. It took such. And here's the thing: like for what I wanted that movie to be, I went to the theater. I probably went after opening weekend, so I'd already started hearing all of the hell that it was going to take. Hmm. But I gotta tell you, I watched it. Yeah, I was disappointed. Yeah, it wasn't the movie that I wanted out of that particular film. But it's still enjoyable. It's a fun popcorn flick. Tom Cruise doesn't make horrible films like i think mm -hmm. he refuses to like it's perfectly fine like it's an enjoyable yeah. two hours you know sure. uh but what what's kind of and this is a minor spoiler for an easter egg paul but what's kind of great is that there is a moment during a chase sequence that <laughs> so uh, okay you haven't seen the movie i'm trying to dance around spoilers here but basically there is a setting that acts as kind of a monster museum of sorts and so you get all these great Easter eggs to, you know, Universal Monster movies of yesteryear. And there's a moment when somebody bumps into a bookcase and clang like a book hits the ground. And it's the Book of the Dead from the first Mummy film. Mm. And it was just kind of like I it might have been just a fun nod, but it was also kind of like this really enticing like idea that like, OK, so is it possible that we might see those characters again or we might, they might be referred to? Is it all canon? Um, and now, you know, I remember the guy who was spearheading the entire thing. He wound up directing the mummy. Um, somebody asked him, you know, what, uh, 
if there would be any references to the previous movies. And he said, so far as he was concerned, all of the original movies happened. And so these were going to be contemporary movies, but all of the previous movies would have still been in canon. And it's like, oh, oh my God, like that would be amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, but we'll never know what was going to come of all that simply because, uh, you know, one movie underperformed. <laughs> they decided to tank well, an entire massive multi-film <sighs> plan. I At the same time, though, after watching um, Invisible Man, I'm I'm much more interested in giving, like maybe slightly lower budgets, still good budgets, but like, you know, 5 million instead of 150 to, uh, uh, up and coming directors that have something to prove, um, and letting them just do something interesting with it. I find when it comes to horror, I find a lot more interesting than these like Marvel esque giant budget, you know, and I, I, at the same time, if they made those, I'd be all in and I would check them out. Um, but I, I mean, Invisible Man was amazing. I'm so happy it exists. And oh, I'm, I'm excited to see whatever else. If they do movies that good with those properties, then like I'd rather have that. Than yeah, Tom and, I, Cruise's and I gotta Mummy say, Five, you know, or whatever. You're right. You're right. I, I do love. You know, the, the, the prospect of a Lee Winnell directed Ryan Gosling led Wolfman yes, is far right, more exactly. exciting so to me excited about than amazing. a Wolfman that was going to star The Rock. You know, like that's. <laughs> Although that which, does sound super fun. <laughs> it's a, well, that's the thing. I think, you know, I. I love The Rock, though. The but Rock's I'm wondering, so though, if you can't do both. You can't. Like, well, that's is the thing. Is there is room. That's the problem, Jinx, is that there's room for both. But studios don't think that way. No, no, no. I don't even mean both. So I mean marrying those approaches. I agree with you. I don't think these characters are meant for these massive blockbuster films. And I say that as somebody who really dug Dracula untold. I say that as somebody who really liked the 1999 Mummy. Um, You know, I – but – I yeah, I much prefer like the lower budgets and the focus on horror, you know, and a, a bit more contained. But at the same time, you know, I I would like to see those characters. I want to see, you know, what I want to see. I want to see Lee Winnell tackling the Wolfman. I want to see Lee Winnell doing the Invisible Man again, or you know, maybe a sequel. I want to see uh, Karin Kasama's Dracula. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, you know, if you're Universal that's great that you're hearkening back to the history of those original movies by doing smaller, creepier takes on those characters, as opposed to trying to build this big MCU esque shared action universe with all of those characters. Sure. But equally in your history is house of Dracula and house of Frankenstein and these monster mash them up. So I wouldn't mind seeing those down the line too. you know, do it in a really fun, interesting way. It doesn't have to be an action film. It doesn't have to be, uh, superhero-esque mash, you know, like, uh, kind of, I don't know. I don't need to see the Avengers of horror. I'm saying no, I, and I don't think that works. I, I think every time it, they've tried, I, but at the same time, like, yeah, I, I had fun with Dracula untold. I think it's a fun movie. I, I have problems with it, but I think it's, it's good time. It, it, it's one of those things where I think I'm torn on all of it. I've, I guess it's part of the issue is like, I, 
I, I would want both in a, in, in a best case scenario, I would just have both things and I could watch them. Like I have fun watching <laughs> these big, huge budget things, but I, but I think where my heart lies is more in the more, I guess, serious approaches to them. Um, not that something like Dracula Untold isn't serious, but you, I think you know what I mean. Like, like when you look at Dracula Untold versus The Invisible Man, The Invisible Man is more grounded. It's it's more like you said, contained, um, more of a character study, uh, and and I and I think it's more successful. Um, and there's, there's less that can go wrong <laughs> when you're making like something. I think, I think the right way to do a giant budget one is to make it fun, like Godzilla versus Kong or something and just go so far in the direction of insanity, um, that you're just having a good time and you're not overthinking it, you know, which I think is maybe like some of the issue with what. Dracula Untold sometimes tried to do where it was like trying to be very, very serious and emotional. And I'm like, well, it's not ever going to be all that successful in the emotional landscape to me. Um, but, yeah, but when but, it, but, but, when it but, but, tries but, 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 to be you, fun, you, it's you very say fun. That. You say that though. And yet, you know, that character is given the backstory that they elect to go with can you know, it can be a really emotional story. I mean, my God, look at Bram Stoker's Dracula. And to me, that seemed to be where they were aiming. They were trying to find the middle ground between a big crowd pleasing, fun action film, but also marrying it to, um, you know, the, the, the weight of like a Bram Stoker's Dracula and that kind of like, uh, you know, the sort of heart and emotions that, you know, came with that film and, you know, remembering that it's all rooted in a love story. Sure. Um, I, I love your chat there. I know it tried. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know but, you love uh, that movie. No, no, no. You, you'll um, never forgive me for my guest appearance on the Cobwebs podcast where it sounded like me, <laughs> where we were like tearing it apart. But uh, it only sounded because like it him... because you guys were actually tearing it apart. No, uh, we weren't. I said I liked it a bunch of times. I said you I did liked it. after bashing the living dude. Just twenty seconds ago, you gleefully added a poke. Yeah, I know it tried. Uh, well, it, it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I but, like to swear, but it sucks. No, it doesn't suck. It doesn't suck. All right. But I am excited to see Karin Kasama's take on Dracula. But oh, I can't wait. The only thing that bugs me about what Universal is doing now is that they're not even attempting that. It's like literally they did one movie trying to do a shared universe, right? They did one film and then it underperformed, didn't even tank. The movie did decent enough business. But they were like, well, it didn't get us our Avengers money, so fuck it. We're going to go ahead and tank the entire thing. That's yeah. just dumb as shit to me. Now, you know, it's great that they're doing the, you know, that they chose Lee Winnell to do The Invisible Man, and he knocked that out of the fucking park. And I have no doubts that he's going to do the same thing with Wolfman. Choosing Karin Kasama to do Dracula is a fucking amazing choice. I love that. But now they're also doing, like, a futuristic Dracula, and now they're doing a Renfield. I'm certain they're not going to connect. And that's fine. You know, they're taking the DC approach now. I guess everything's going in that direction of, well, everything, but Marvel where it's like, okay, it's, it's too hard to create 
continuity. So we're just going to like take these characters and do 50,000 different things with them. And let each director fucking just go in whatever direction they want to go in. You nailed it when you said it's too hard. We're just going to go. And Marvel did it, but like no one else wants to put in the work (laughs) that Marvel put in. And that's because they don't install a figurehead who can do both you to be successful at that. You need to allow your filmmakers to bring in their own personal vision and their own voice to tell it and not well, fuck even, with that. but you and even Disney couldn't replicate it to like, a larger, you know, a larger story that will connect, you know, and, uh, nobody, I wouldn't think here's the thing. Comic book companies do this shit all the time. You know, they manage to make that shit work. Marvel has laid out a template for how to do it. For the life of me, I don't understand how nobody else can seem to be able to figure this fucking thing well, out. Well, even, but my point is like, even Disney couldn't do it again because they couldn't do it with Star Wars. Like, they fucked up Star Wars. Like, and how hard would it have been? There, they, but they, they but literally, they literally had that template with Marvel and then they just didn't do that with Star Wars. They didn't put one person in charge to oversee everything and make sure that there was continuity and it was all thought out. They just let random person from random person go movie to movie to movie. No, 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 no. I don't think they And do. I don't I want to, have... I do not, I am not interested in getting into a Star Wars conversation. But I am now because you opened it up. Um, no, uh, no with, we're at the end game of the movie. We should probably talk about the finale here. Yeah, and if you, go ahead and what? mount your defense really, really quickly and, and no, then we can I'm, move on. I'm, no, I'm taking my fucking time. Um, <laughs> no, I think Kennedy was kind of the figurehead and I think they were definitely going that route. If you watch those movies... They were definitely going that route where they were going to tie them in and they were going to You're see. You're saying the Force Awakens to The Last Jedi makes any sense. And I love The Last Jedi. This is coming from someone who thinks The Last Jedi is easily the best Star Wars movie since the original trilogy. Paul, you're saying they don't? Where, where, where are the massive... Uh, uh, you mean how The Last Jedi the literally undoes them? every single thing that J.J. set up because it was all bullshit? Like, and that's And what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that, it but that shows sense. that they didn't know where they were going. Well, that shows no, that there was no plan. There was zero plan the for the trilogy, which is a plan. Sure, but that's a bad when idea. It comes <laughs> to the spinoffs, like when they did, uh, like Rogue One, when they did Solo, you could tell that they were building. And plus, no, I, I'm sorry, I don't buy the idea that they had no overall plan because right now they're knocking it out of the park with their fucking TV stuff. Um, no, I think the biggest problem was is they brought in a filmmaker like Ryan Johnson, who I, I, and here's the thing, I. I'm the weird fan who thinks that The Last Jedi is really good. Don't love it. Don't think it's this revolutionary piece of fantasy cinema. Neither still, I I don't fucking hate the movie either. Like uh, some of these people just went on and on and on and on and on about how the fucking movie really yeah, and I don't, I don't think I honestly do. But I got to like, tell you, like when it comes to The Last to Jedi, I think it was perfectly yeah. fine. But. You, I, I do agree that the last Star Wars was absolutely just a complete dreck. But I think the biggest thing that seemed to kill their plan, well, and and here's the thing: the thing that really derailed it entirely to me was the fact. Okay, so Rogue One was hugely successful, right? I think it was simply turning fans off with the Last Jedi, sort of not giving them what they wanted, and then coupling that with the fact that they released their next movie not in the winter when all the previous movies had done very well, but by releasing it in the summer. I think their cash they killed their cash cow, and for whatever reason, they just decided after one underperforming movie, 
that they were going to completely kill all of those side projects, which makes no sense to me, but bless them for bringing all that stuff back to Disney plus seems to be that they're killing it there. So more power to them and scene. I get it. I just think a lot of it's hot garbage, but we can move on. Uh, <laughs> Star Wars used to be good and now it's not. Uh, but anyway, so I the, I'm not the uh, big Star Wars fan. I'm not. I can't. No, that's I, the thing. I can't even get I that worked care. up about Star Wars I because care. I was never that big of a Star Wars fan. I don't Wars care fan. about Star Wars. I don't care about. I mean, I did. I was a huge Star Wars fan when I was a kid. The now, first three movies are like like golden to me. Like the un, the before Lucas went and like fucked with them. Um, and like, I mean, I would rather watch like. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh. We missed a lot of stuff. So, like, there's a scene where Stanley sort of leaves Barbara that I wanted to talk about. We were talking about fucking Star Wars. Um, I wish I regret everything, everything in my life that led to this moment. Um, But I liked I liked him abandoning Barbara. I liked like his one of his final acts before he dies is just being the ultimate shitty person, like (laughs) abandoning this like woman who's stood by him through all of his bullshit and he even feels bad they show him feeling bad about it and she's like he's like barbara and she's like what and he's like nothing and then he just goes um i like that he sort of dies feeling bad but it's a weird culmination to that character it really feels like why did he live this long like we talked about this earlier but like why is he the sort of ultimate kill honestly i I was thinking about that while you were, you know, while we've been, uh, you know, doing this commentary. And I was like, you know, that is a that is a very good point. Why the hell did they keep him around? And I think it comes down to the fact that if you did, you know, I take it back. I don't know that the movie, the movie would probably be even worse if you had swapped his character and Morel simply because if you didn't have that guy sticking around until the final act, there would be no conflict in this film whatsoever outside of the fact that you have a fucking rampaging mummy running around. Like none. It it just you know, well, like, and so the, the best that they can do is by having an asshole, you know, constantly on scene to be an asshole when there's not a mummy killing people. I think the conflict could have been we us wanting like if you had the whole movie and you'd you had handled Morel's character better, you could have made us want him to live. Oh yeah. And you could have had him working to sort of find a way out of Egypt or a way to counteract the curse. Um, versus Stanley, who's just sort of like an ineffectual jerk. You know, he's his his strategy is to try to undermine the police the whole time. That's what he's trying to do. He's like, how can I get around this this uh, this officer, basically, as opposed to actually working to solve the mystery of, you know, what's plaguing them, which I think Basil would have done. I think Basil would have been more interested in the sort of like mystical stuff that was going on versus Stanley, who is more interested in the bureaucratic shit. And that's just makes for a less interesting movie to me, I guess is what it boils down to. I mean, whatever resulted in the movie that we wound up getting, um, you know, mistakes were made. Uh, (laughs) Well, we do get Maggie Kimberly, like who is somebody that you, I think want to live. Like, I, I don't think she's somebody she, she's a little bit, wooden by nature of the script like it's not really her fault um but she isn't like a bad 
person and we were i think we we care about her plate i think that her the biggest issue there is that the movie just hasn't done a good enough job to make us care about really much of what's going on by the climax we're just kind of waiting for it to end yeah no lord knows i was um <laughs> i i will say whoever the actress is who plays haiti i think is really pro Honestly, probably the only person in the film. And again, I, you know, and you noted this as well. There are no bad performances in this film, but neither still are there any really great performances or even performances that feel like, you know, the, the performer was that engaged. But I take that back. Haiti is actually really wonderful in it. It's, she's, she's the only person in this movie that feels like she's having any fun and really sort of swinging for the fences with her performance. Yeah. No, I agree. And I I do want to say for the record that like I don't I I did like I did really like Last Jedi. I just was very disappointed with what they did with that final one. And it felt like a slap in the face to the whole trilogy and it felt like it undermined everything it was doing. And oh, it the now final makes one like terrible. Well, and it, it, it makes me like I can't go back and watch Force Awakens now, to be honest, because it's like, well, I know where this is all going and it's dumb. Like, I don't know. I it, it, I feel like a, a series like that is so intrinsically tied to how it ends that it, it's like a TV show. If a, if a show has like a horrible ending, then it's really hard for me to go back and watch earlier seasons. Yeah, no, I guess Especially so. if it's a plot-driven show. So I, I think that's more my issue with it. I wasn't really talking about the spinoffs. Um, I enjoyed no, I Rogue just One. Mean... I did not see Solo, honestly. I didn't even watch it. So Dude, it's know. the best, I honestly. Know. I can't comment on it. Out of all of them. Force Awakens, Last Jedi, whatever the fuck the last one was called, I couldn't even. I it can't even. The be Rise for... of Skywalker, which is oh, such a terrible right. title. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because there's a Skywalker at the end of it, and that makes no sense either. Um, Rogue One, which I actually think is quite not good. Um, out of all of the like Disney stuff, I haven't seen The Mandalorian. <laughs> I saw the pilot and really liked it quite a bit. But other than that, out of all of the Disney stuff, Solo is the closest in tone and just pure fun of the original trilogy. It's the only one I haven't watched. <laughs> Easily the best. Hands well, down. I'll check it out. I mean, I, I was... it's, it's on Disney plus. I'll watch it eventually. It's so I good. just it's, haven't it's gotten great. to do it. it. I got, I, I got burnt out. They gave me too much Star Wars. Star Wars needs to be like parsed out. I need yep. one Star Wars every like four years. Then I'm good. But like, if I get one every year, it's way too fucking much. And that's why I hope that Rise of Skywalker isn't – you're right. I mean that final movie kind of ruins that trilogy because you don't want to go back and rewatch Force Awakens. You don't want to watch Last Jedi because why spend another four hours watching this stuff when you don't feel like watching the last one and how it all culminates? You know, I know I don't, but I wish they would get past this idea that the Skywalker films have to be trilogies and just do another film and try and do those characters justice. You know, do a wrap-up yeah. film. Do a tenth. Yeah. Um, but no, no, I mean, they have what, like nine or ten television series they're going to be doing they're, in the next few years? They're, they're, Star Wars is going to be fine. <laughs> it will survive this. It will they're make good. a million more movies. Um, so this ending sequence is interesting. Uh, we it, There's a lot going on. It's a little bit, the action's a little convoluted. I, I don't love how it's shot, but I do like... Mummy I with do an like axe. sort of mummy with an axe is great. I, I frankly I, think that, uh, you know, I love that there was no hesitation. It's just like, oh, this fucker's responsible. I'm just going to gun yeah. him down, shoot him right in the back. And I really like that. It's ultimately Claire 
who saves the day. That's yes. kind of cool. Like, I mean, I can't think of a lot of situations where, you know, the female protagonist is sort of the one who steps in and saves everybody, you know, isn't the one being saved. Oh, you mean like, uh, well, no, clearly like maybe the reptile or, oh, no, wait. Uh, well, maybe, <laughs> uh, the plague of the, uh, oh, no, wait. Uh, well, maybe the, uh, uh fuck it, Paul. I think you got a, you got a point here. And we You're get, right. we get this amazing disintegration, like one of the better effect sequences of its time, really. It's fantastic. And interestingly, um, this was not shot at Bray. This was shot at Les Bowie's studio. And Bowie completely reconstructed the set from Bray on a rostrum so they could work underneath it. And they did all kinds of crazy thing. They used like Fuller's Earth mixed with paint dust on a wax hand uh, to create the disintegration. So it was actually a ton of work went into that one shot. And it looks, you're absolutely right. It looks fantastic. Um, yeah. I, uh, I kind of wish some of their other, uh, their sort of, you know, big hammer demises had had that much effort as this or a horror of Dracula. I mean, you know, not all of them do. I, I would argue even not many of them do. Um, but that was uh, that was fantastic. And again, it comes down to there being, you know, sort of a great standout moment in this film that, uh, you know, features the mummy. Because that's when everybody seemed to be awake. <laughs> yeah. Well, and at least it leaves you on a good note. You know, like a cool effects thing is what it ends with. But... <laughs> All told, The Mummy Shroud is definitely one of Hammer's lesser outings for me. Lesser um, or least? That's tough. It's 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 low on my list. Right now, the lowest movies on my list are, are two Mummy movies. It's this, <laughs> uh, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and then, um, and we talked about it earlier, but the remake of The Old Dark House. The, those are the three... Movies I like the least of Hammer's you know, catalog that I've seen. I haven't I, seen a lot of Hammer movies. It's funny. You mentioned The Old Dark House, and I would agree with you. Like, if I were to choose my bottom three right now, I kid you not, those would probably be the three. And yet there is a gulf between The Old Dark House and the two Mummy movies. Like, because at well, least yeah. it was kind of fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's weird. It's It's a complicated thing. Because on one hand, I would agree with you that, like, so... From a watchability perspective, like if you put those three movies in front of me and said, hey, watch one of them right now, I would watch Old Dark House in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even think about it. It wouldn't even be a question. That has fucking Noah's Ark in their backyard. Like that movie is so bizarre and off the wall and just crazy that at least there's, you know, things in it to hold my attention. Um, Yet, if I was talking about them as like, you know, films and saying, okay, what's the quality of the movie and the filmmaking? Um, I would argue that mummy shroud is a much better made film than old dark house. I would, I, agree. I, I would agree. So that's why I would rank. If I was making a ranking, I would probably put old dark house below mummy shroud. But if I was watching these movies, I would rather watch old dark house, you know, between the two <laughs> though. I mean, yeah, I'm still going to give the edge to old dark house because between the two, you're right. The mummy films are ultimately better made, but uh, you know, only one movie has uh, title cards created by Charles Adams. So that's true. I mean, I I agree. There's the the watchability factor 
of old dark house is very high and that it's totally fair to give it the edge for that reason. You know, I, if that, that's a factor when you're, when you're ranking movies and <laughs> ranking movies is so subjective anyway. So it's like, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. So, but either so, way, uh, curse of the werewolf, probably yeah. hovering oh just above God. old dark house. So uh, curse <laughs> <of> the werewolf. <laughs> I'm kidding. That would be so good. We'll know so, eventually when we do our rankings. <laughs> I'm scared of that. Well, the weird thing, though, is there's so many. And, and you said it earlier. Like, I, I think it's fair to say both. I mean, you've probably seen more Hammer than I have. But <clears throat> I feel like fairly well versed in Hammer at this point. Like, I, I think I've seen a good amount of Hammer. But again, similar to Hitchcock, I feel like there's so many I haven't seen. <laughs> you know, like. And I'm glad we're doing this podcast as well because it is getting me to watch movies. But th- but there's also like their other stuff that we're kind of skipping over, you know. And I'm almost wondering like when we're done with the horror stuff, if we shouldn't go back and do like some of the pirate stuff or like, you know, <laughs> just like force ourselves to watch more Hammer just so we can kind of like complete that that niche. But how many movies did Hammer make? Like what's their total count? Oh my goodness! The it's got to be high. Like I, I know I way overestimated Hitchcock's filmic output. I was like a hundred movies, and you're like it's like sixty ball. And I'm yeah, like, well, okay. no, 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 no. But I think you were right in that it was also accounting for various other things that he had done too. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just the the because I was only counting the uh, the silent films and the talkies. I wasn't counting like television stuff or Schwartz or anything like. Sure, that. sure. So I think you like totally. And plus that would be neat at some point to go through Hitchcock's entire filmography and include all of that stuff too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, Hammer. I've been mad. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're good. I just, I don't know how many hammer films they did. Back it has to be. Well, and then the real question is like, do you count, where do you start counting? Cause they were making movies. What in the late forties? I mean, like hammer as a company existed well before you know we started with curse of frankenstein but they existed well before that you know um so i think if you're i think it just depends on where you start counting those films 50 51 Paul, the Curse of Frankenstein in 1957 was yeah. their 60th film. Jesus. Okay. So I haven't even seen a fraction of their movies. I don't think we can do like all of them, but um, yeah. Well, no. some of the, some of the pre Frankenstein stuff is very good. You know, I talked about, um, abominable snowman with you like that's a great movie like that would be a really fun movie to do a commentary for i mean the quatermass experiment would be great to go back well yeah we need to go back and clean up like uh a couple you know like x the unknown or the four-sided triangle like stuff like the unknown yeah yeah i've seen that and there's um and there's other ones that are good that i think we skipped over like i like uh there's a movie called nightmare that I think is from, I think we, we skipped where that was because it, it's not really uh horror horror, you know, it's more psychological and a little bit like there's not any overt horrific things happening in it. And I don't think it really has any of hammers major players, but it was a really good movie. You know, th- there, there's a lot of stuff that they made that was a little bit smaller 
uh, in scope and maybe a little bit more B movie. Uh, that would be interesting to kind of go back and watch, but I, I've I've been really enjoying just kind of hitting all their major titles though, because it's helping fill in a lot of gaps. Yeah, absolutely, and it's funny. Uh, with every one of these, I'm upgrading from the old DVDs to the new Screen yeah. Factory Blu-rays and the Warner Archive and all of that jazz. So uh, it's neat to just slowly fill out that collection bit by bit by bit that I way. Think, so yeah, I think we're gonna have like a pretty definitive Hammer collection when all <laughs> said and done, both of us. <laughs> I've been trying to do that with Hitchcock, which I'm annoyed because I didn't. Like, early on when I started buying Hitchcock movies, I just didn't buy that big, like, you know, there's that, like, 17 movie box set that you can get. I didn't buy that, and by now I've bought, like, most of the movies in that set, and I'm sure I've spent more money getting them individually than if I had just bought that effing set, you know? I think there was a gold box deal on that set one day, and I got it for, like, 50 bucks. Oh, yeah, because I own... I think I own like almost all the movies in that set individually. So imagine how much more I paid. Yeah, <laughs> that's always because there's yeah. no way I didn't. I mean, I probably averaged I would say like fifteen dollars a movie to buy them. So you spent so, about two hundred and fifty five dollars roughly. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yep. Ooh. But uh, I've I've uh, but I've also picked up like um, a lot of his silent stuff. Like um, uh, Kino put out a box set of his silent films. I bought that. And um, I've just been every time there's like a sale at a boutique label, I search for Hitchcock titles. And if they have one, I buy it. So I've been kind of like, but I haven't watched them all yet. You know, it's like, so I've got a ton on my shelf. I just need to go through and actually like make myself watch them. <laughs> nah, I hear you. Uh, yeah, he is. You know, it's funny. I've seen so much Hitchcock, but I haven't seen it just from the conversation we had last week and just glancing over his filmography, I was like, Oh my goodness, there is so much left for me, but that's a great thing too, because it's a hey, good thing. Yeah, I have brand new thing. Hitchcocks out yeah. there that I have yet to see. So, uh, I feel the same yeah. way about hammer too. You know, there are a handful left that, uh, I haven't seen yet. So, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, next week we are going to be doing like, I think we talked about this earlier, Quatermass in the pit, which I got to ask Paul, are you familiar with Quatermass series or will this be a first time watch for you? Uh, no, I have seen this one. Um, weirdly I've seen, uh, the original Quatermass experiment and I've seen Quatermass in the pit, but for some reason I've never watched Quatermass two. Quatermass so I've seen two one is and three. so good. Well, and I have, the funny thing is I bought the Blu-ray, so I do own it. <laughs> Um, but I just haven't watched it. I've been planning on, I'm thinking about doing an article on that one at some point, uh, for hammer factory. Cause it was a screen factory release. Uh, so I was sort of saving it for when I did my article. Um, but I can't, yeah, like the original Quater mass was put out by Kino. So unfortunately it doesn't qualify for that column. Uh, uh but damn. Yeah. But uh, Quatermass in the Pit was Scream Factory, and I did, and that was actually the first Quatermass movie I watched. Uh, weirdly, I kind of watched them all out of order, and which is uh, kind of fine in a way because fine. they're all stand. Yeah, it's like so watching cool. Bond films out right. of order, you know. And that's kind of why I did it. And everyone had said that that one was like really, really great, so I was sort of driven towards seeing it. So I watched it like the second I got it, and uh, yeah, I loved it. So I'm. Pretty excited to uh, delve back into it and talk about it next week. I I feel like that's one that we should try to get a guest for, because uh, that's a 
a bigger movie. I'm sure there's people who want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, it's funny. Like I said, we've already covered Quatermass on this podcast ages ago uh, with Paul Tremblay. But yeah, I uh, I would totally be down for somebody coming in and uh, chatting Quatermass with us because uh, great character, great movie. And uh, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun doing a commentary for it. For I think. sure. Damn sight more fun than uh, The Mummy's Shroud. You know what, though? I thought it was a fun conversation. It was, it was Think that we did it justice. And, and, and weirdly I didn't, I was, here's what I was worried about little post, uh, post commentary chat for our listeners who actually stuck with us. Um, I was worried there'd not be enough to say, because oh, I feel like in Old Dark House, we like very quickly ran out of things to say. It was like, like it minute was like 30. Uh, we were done. Yeah. And like and we all sort of admitted it and we're like, well, I guess we'll just talk about what we're seeing because it's really. But I feel like with Mummy Shroud, even though it's a movie we didn't like all that much, there there was a lot to talk about. Like in general, we stayed pretty on point aside from a few Star Wars asides and Tom Cruise mummy asides. Uh, we were, we basically talked about the mummy shroud the whole time. And I don't think we were like filling time. I think we actually were talking about the movie. So there is something to be said about the fact that there is, you know, there, there were a lot of really interesting creatives that worked on the film. Um, you know, Gilling as a director is an interesting guy who did a lot of great work. And there's some things he brings to this film that the cast is pretty impressive. Um, so I don't know. I felt like it was a, a productive chat that did the movie justice, even though we didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. So imagine what we're going to be able to do next with, with Quatermass. Maybe oh, I'm man. setting us up for you're failure. Set, I was going to say you're setting the expectations pretty high. <laughs> yeah, well, we should. You know, we should That's meet fair. those expectations. No, I'm we not worried. About, yeah, Quatermass should bash. be pretty easy to talk about for 90 minutes, right? I mean, like, there's so much. Because even if we talk, yeah, it'll be easy. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. All right. Now, Paul, where can folks find you at online? Uh, I am at the always modest Paul is great 2000 uh, at Twitter. And where can folks uh, find your writing at? You mentioned a hammer factory, but in case this is the first episode that people check out, let them know a little bit about hammer factory and where they can find them. Uh, yeah. So hammer factory, I basically take a look at, uh, screen factory has been putting out a lot of hammer movies. Um, I will take one of their releases, uh, sort of do an analysis on the context around the making of the film. So give you a little bit of background history on hammer studios and what was kind of happening at the time of the movie's, uh, inception. And then, um, go into the film itself, do a bit of a review on the movie, uh, walk through all the different special features, and then kind of give final thoughts on the disc, the film, and its overall legacy. So it's a pretty in-depth analysis of uh, Hammer movies. Call it Hammer Factory, and it can be found at uh, Bloody Disgusting. Uh, and I usually link that stuff on my Twitter. Um, I also occasionally write for Scriptophobics and do a column called Written in Blood, I've done about 63 of those. So there's a lot of, there's a big backlog uh, of those to be read if you're so interested. And I take uh, a visual effects sequence, uh, go to the original screenplay and break down sort of a script to screen analysis of how that stuff was realized uh, in the film. Uh, so there's some cool stuff to be found there as well. 
Good deal. I've checked them out, and I think everybody out there should as well. All right, man. I will see you next week for Quatermass and the Pit. Have a great evening, and thank you for co-hosting. No problem, man. Happy to be here. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.